Hello and welcome to It's a Musical Podcast, the podcast show where I force my fiance to watch musicals she should have seen by now, and then we talk about them. I am the fiance. And I am a drama teacher who happens to teach the play that we are talking about today. Yes. So what better show for me to be an expert on and either showcase my sheer lack of knowledge <laughs> and expose myself for a fraud mm-hmm. than Blood Brothers. Yeah. Drew, did you hear the story of the Johnston twins as like each other as two new pins? Far too many times. Of one womb born on the self-same day, how one was kept and one given away. Yeah, so I was a drama student. I... <laughs> was a drama student once and I studied Blood Brothers and I saw it in the theatre when I was like 14. Yes. A couple of, I've seen it I believe three times in the theatre. Yeah. And I remember absolutely nothing except for some really random things. Yeah. Whereas I teach this one at GCSE. Mm Mm-hmm. And have seen it quite regularly for like seven years. Mm-hmm. And I saw it again whilst I was younger, but it is something I see annually and continues to move me. And I continue to love each time I watch. So you've just said there's a few things that you remember about this one. What small things do you remember? I remember acting out a scene where they shoot peter pan with like an air gun or a bb gun i don't know what you would call that and the boys can't hit it and linda always hits it yep. who did you play in that scene <laughs> i played eddie <laughs> in a group with me and two boys i asked to play eddie he's the best character from what i remember i remember singing Eddie's song, like his solo, I could not tell you what it is. Yeah. But I remember that he has a solo song and that that was the one that I performed. So I believe that song is going to be I'm not saying a word because that is the only solo song he has. Sounds familiar. And that's the one where he is professing his love to one of the characters. Wonderful. Mickey, obviously. Obviously. Um, <laughs> what else do I remember? I remember vividly, I vividly remember the first time I went to see it, we'd just gotten a new head teacher at my school. Yeah. And he was a very professional, like our previous head teacher was not a very professionally dressed person. And so when this guy came, he always was in like a black suit, like really fitted suit. And he was very like authoritative and we were all quite scared of him. And then we went to see Blood Brothers and the guy who was playing the narrator looked exactly like our new head teacher and our new head teacher was also Northern. So we we were all like, oh my God, it looks exactly like him. Yeah. So I really remember that and that the narrator is either the devil or a detective or my drama teacher told me it's their dad in the future, yes. like, recollecting this whole thing. Now, hopefully, people will have listened to our episode with Robbie Scotcher, which launched Friday. And if you haven't, go and listen to it. Robbie Scotcher plays the narrator in Blood Brothers. And one of the questions I asked him was, how did you go about 
staging this role. Yeah. And with the narrator, I had never heard, and I certainly don't teach, the idea that it could be the dad theory. (laughs) Because we do see their dad very, very briefly at the opening of the play, as you will see when we go see it. I like to think that the narrator is the devil because there's moments of like well, he, contact he, like, references it he I does know there's a line about like the devil's got your number yes but there's moments as well where he has some interaction very very sparingly used as well i would say but there are moments where there's direct interaction with the actors that's like he's making these pivotal moments happen that lead to the outcome but We'll talk, I guess, once we've seen Robbie Scotcher perform Mm -hmm. about the narrator character and what we think he means. Oh, and there's there's like an obsession with Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Because me and my brother used to like scream that song at each other for a laugh. Well, because I guess the whole idea is Marilyn Monroe is this tragic figure. Yeah. And this musical is supposed to be a tragedy. Sure. And... We start off bright and optimistic like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. But we're not going to end that way. Now, Willie Russell, born in 1947, has written multiple plays, very, very successful career, is born near Liverpool, which Mm -hmm. I guess is important if we're talking about this. This show is considered and has been called a Liverpudlian folk opera and the Scouse West Side Story. It's important, I guess, because we're thinking Willie Russell Mm -hmm. has written plays and musicals about Liverpool and Liverpudlian culture. Yes. In 1974, wrote John, Paul, George, Ringo and Bert, which is a musical about the Beatles. Yeah. It ran for eight weeks before transferring to the West End, where it ran for over a year. And it won the Evening Standard and London Theatre Critics Award for Best Musical of 1974. Mm-hmm. Also wrote Educating Rita, that starred Julie Walters and Mark Kingston. But one of the most famous and worldwide theatrical successes he has had is Blood Brothers. Yeah. And it did start as a school play. So he debuted it uh, at Fazer Curley Comprehensive School in November 1981. And then he wrote the score, developed the musical for a production at the Liverpool Playhouse in 1983. And it then transferred to the West End on the 11th of April 1983. And it debuted at the Lyric Theatre, which which has had a a tremendous catalogue of shows in its history. And it's due to have Get Up, Stand Up, the Bob Marley musical opening. Well, is currently hosting that, apparently, 1st of October. Yeah. But it's had some fantastic shows. So Thriller Live, Cabaret, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Brief Encounter. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, really acclaimed theatre. But it debuted there for a year. And it went on to win the Olivier Award for Best New Musical. Yeah. Now, you don't think this one is a musical. You said to me, like, but is it a musical? That's why I consider always, I mean, I think the songs in this are integral. They tell the story. Yeah, which is funny because 
when you told me we were going to go and see this, the first thing I said was, but that's not a musical. Yeah. Because somehow, actually, I know how, but I had completely wiped all the music from this from my brain. And that's because when we studied it at school, we had one, I think, half term where we looked at the music aspect of it. And then the rest of it was all based on the storytelling and the sort of acting and what do you call it? Brechtian style of the rest of it. But I still vividly remember singing Eddie's song. So I knew it was a musical, but for some reason my brain had convinced me that it had like four songs and they were really spread apart and like, that's it. No, this show has 24 songs. Yeah. And what I'll say is that they may not necessarily be songs that I would put on playlists, but I would say they are songs that are vital to the storytelling aspect of this. Absolutely. There are some fun songs, but I think we're in Les Mis and Miss Saigon territory here of the majority of these songs being depressing and probably not ones you'd want to listen to mm. outside of this universe. But it is still a musical. So it won two Olivier Awards in 1983, Best New Musical and Best Actress in a Musical for Barbara Dickinson. Yeah. The 1988 London Revival, it won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical for Con O'Neill, who was playing Mickey. Mm-hmm. Was nominated for Best Actress in a Musical for Kiki D. Oh, yeah. I remember reading about that. And then, on Broadway... It won a Drama Desk Award in 1993 for Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical for Mark Michael Hutchinson, who is Eddie. Uh, and then was nominated for Outstanding Actor in a Musical for Con O'Neill. Interesting there, I think, that it shows who critics view as the main character mm. is, is Mickey Johnstone. It was nominated for several Tonys. Do you want to take a guess at how many Tonys it was nominated for? What year was it? 1993. How many it was nominated for? I'm going to say seven. Close. It was nominated for six. And it won like three. Zero. All right. It won zero Tonys. But I was thinking at least for like the set design or something. It was nominated for best musical, best book of a musical, Mm -hmm. best performance by a leading actor in a musical. So that was to Con O'Neill. Best performance by a leading actress in a musical. And that's Stephanie Lawrence. Yeah. She played... Mrs. Johnston, who I think is the leading female character in this show. Mm-hmm. Best performance by a featured actress in a musical for Jan Greveson. Yeah. And that was for Linda. And best direction of a musical for Bill Kenwright and Bob Thompson, who continue to be involved with it to this day. Yes. It won none of those Tonys. But again, it just adds more to my argument I was ready to go to you with. Do you know what it was up against for Best Musical? What was it up against? Have you Piece done it? the Spider-Woman. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And also Tommy, which vividly remember being taken to see that way too young. Yeah. Which is the, the, the who. But then also you had Anna Karenina yeah. was there and... You just It just wasn't going to happen for Blood Brothers, unfortunately, with the Tonys. I think... Well, I don't think this is one that translates well to an American that's audience. That's what I was going to say. There's a lot of musicals that have transferred to Broadway from the West End that take very, very British or English stories and don't translate yeah. well 
if you don't at least feel like you can experience some of these things. Like the thing with Blood Brothers is that obviously you've got the social class yep. aspect. And I think everybody who went to pub public school, do we call it public school? We can. I mean, I mean like normal school, state yeah. school. Everybody who went to a state school in the UK will know this kind of story. Yeah. Because we're all aware of how vastly different our friends' lives around us could be. Yes. Whereas this kind of, like, while that is also true in America, the very specific types of families that you're seeing here, I don't think would translate. No. So, Willie Russell uh, left school at 15. He spent a lot of his time in his early life surrounded by the women in his family. So his mother, grandmother, his aunties. And he says that because most of the men he knew worked shifts, whilst his male family members were out at work, he absorbed the women's view of the world by listening to them talking. And he then went on to be a women's hairdresser. And he says that was when he learned how to be a good listener. I'm so sure. <laughs> uh, he began writing folk songs and sketches for local radio. And at 20, he went to college to qualify as a teacher. Mm. And he taught in Toxteth, which is one of the most deprived areas of Liverpool. And this is where he started writing shows. And he obviously started with uh, Keep Your Eyes Down in 1971. And then he wrote John, Paul, George, Ringo and Bert. Yeah. But... Because of that, obviously, his experience, he has worked with the sorts of characters that Blood Brothers deals with mm. because he was working one of the most deprived areas. So people don't specifically know when this text is set. Yeah. But a lot of directors have used the references to Marilyn Monroe to assume that it's the 1950s, early 1960s mm -hmm. because uh, of the kind of high points of her career yeah and obviously her death in 1962 and you've talked a little bit about the themes he explores so we've obviously got the social class divides but he would also say that you've got fate and destiny yeah. as a theme that you've got nature versus nurture as a key theme that you've got the idea of single parent families and the impact that can have the poverty and unemployment, which leads into the social class divides. State versus private education, superstition and adolescence, which I think are very, very key to this story. Yeah. When I spoke with Robbie, he also mentioned that to him, addiction and mental health are big parts of this world, which I, again, would agree with. That mm. those are key themes one of the other things I think is really, really important is Blood Brothers is the third longest running musical on Broadway and the West End combined. Yeah. So it has had 10,013 performances in London. Wow. And 839 on Broadway. And it is the longest running musical revival in history. So when the revival started in 1988... The only two musicals above that, mm -hmm. Phantom of the Opera at number two. Yep. Which is 13,800 in London and 13,300 on Broadway. And Les Mis, which yeah. has 14,000 in London 
and 6,680 on Broadway. Mm. It is the fifth longest running theatre West End show of all time. So it is below Woman in Black, which has had 12,326 performances. Yeah. Still runs at the Fortune Theatre. Got Phantom of the Opera. Still running at Her Majesty's Theatre, Les Mis. Still running at the Sondheim Theatre. And also doing the concert. Yep. Number one show is The Mousetrap with 28,000 performances. Mm. So, it you know, it comes with a very, very rich heritage. We are going to be seeing Lynn Paul as Mrs. Johnston. This mm-hmm. is being billed as her farewell tour to the character. Yeah. So she is a pop singer and actress found fame initially as a member of the New Seekers in the 1970s and then she debuted as Mrs Johnstone in 1997 yeah and has been voted as the undisputed Mrs Johnstone of all time she is considered the Mrs Johnstone Mm -hmm. which is interesting because obviously usually you'd look to the originators of the roles yeah you would look to the people who maybe win the awards but she is seen as the most important mrs johnstone so much so that in october 2012 when it was announced that it was going to close in the london west end after 24 years bill kenwright put together his dream cast including original cast members as well as those who'd appeared on broadway he wanted Lynn Paul to be Mrs. Johnstone. Hmm. So even Bill Kenwright sees her as the definitive Mrs. Johnstone. We obviously have Robbie Scotcher as our narrator. Yep. Who has uh, been in Mamma Mia on the West End. Mm-hmm. Was Jerome in Merrily We Roll Along. Oh, cool. Has played... Loads of fantastic shows. One I've seen him in was Aragon in Lord of the Rings, the musical at Drury Lane. That was awesome. So I've seen him as the narrator previously mm-hmm. since he took up the role. But I've also seen him as Aragon. But when you look through, uh, when you look through the cast, it's amazing how many of these actors have been performing Blood Brothers for the longest time. Some of them, so for instance, Paula Tappenden, who's Mrs. Lyons, played Mrs. Lyons at the Phoenix Theatre in the West End. Cool. So has gone back to that time pre-2012. Yeah. And keeps coming back to this role. There's a lot of these. I think Linda's the same as well. She was the cover for Linda at the Phoenix Theatre as well. So there's a lot of these actors have been involved in Blood Brothers for the longest time. Is there anything else you remember about Blood Brothers before we do <laughs> sign off, head to the new Victoria Theatre and go and watch this? I remember really not liking one of the twins. I'm assuming it's not the one I played. So Mickey. Yep. Because like I can't imagine asking to play the one that I didn't like. Yeah. So... I, I just really vividly remember that the the version that I can remember seeing, where I believe I was like 18 
because like yeah. my brother invited me along to his GCSE trip to see it and he's two years younger than me yeah so that sounds about right to me he creeped me out <laughs> I think is the best way to describe it I don't know who it was and I don't know what it was about him I'm just left with this sense of like he made me really uneasy oh you've said something about sweaty Mickey before so I think it must be Mickey that you're thinking of I think I don't think it was because he was sweaty because obviously I understand actors yes. get very sweaty on stage especially when they're performing more physical roles yes but I, he dribbled a lot and I didn't like it and I, I oh because he he takes tablets yes he does he has to take tablets and whatever the tablets were in this version the the actor decided or you know the direction was that it was like making him dribble a lot and oh no I can't deal I cannot deal with that yeah on stage because all it just makes me oh all i start thinking about is like somebody has to clean your clothes in the costume department somebody's gonna have to wipe down the stage like you're gonna get hurt yeah this is covid times i don't want to see any spit in this performance no and that's absolutely fair this is one that every time i see it we have the same stage the same uh i guess grandeur to it i think the final thing i'm gonna end on before we do go and see it is that blood brothers has become known as the standing ovation musical right because it inevitably and this is a quote from the daily mail i'm not a fan of the daily mail but you know this is a a, a quote that can be sourced to them it always gets a standing ovation it brings the audience cheering to its feet and roaring its approval every time and, and i will say this every time i have seen it there has been a standing ovation. Okay. So I don't know if it will this time, Mm -hmm. but I think it is a culturally important show. It's obviously a rites of passage for a lot of children and students who study this, mine included. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those shows that I think when you see it, it brings a new love for this script yeah you know the songs come alive and it's the same with everything it's like shakespeare shouldn't be read it should be experienced Mm -hmm. but when you look at the script for this it's so easy to forget it's a musical and it's so easy to forget there are songs yeah but when you see the songs they get stuck in your head and i think they are very very well done so i'm excited to see this one again i me too i'm excited to See how much of it suddenly comes flying back into my brain. Yes. And on that note, it's a bright new day. We're going away. It's off to the theatre for Willie Russell's Blood Brothers. We will be back shortly after intermission. Did you hear the story of the Johnston twins? As like each other as two new pins. Of one womb born on the self same day. How one was kept and one given away. And did you never hear how the Johnstons died? Never knowing that they shared one name. For the day they died when a mother cried. My own dear sons lie slain. 
And did you never hear of the mother so cruel there's a stone in place of her heart? Then bring her on and come, judge for yourselves how she came to play this part. And we are back. It's weird for you to be saying that and not me. Right? We've only ever done one previous episode where I'm the lead. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice, but I, I feel the pressure. Yeah. How you remain so cool all the time. It's beyond me. I don't think I I'm just, that capable. I just know a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm just really intelligent. <laughs> that you are. <laughs> Nothing. The fact that I remember what we're talking about every week is actually beyond me. Right. I forgot how long Blood Brothers is. Oh my god. I forgot how long Blood Brothers is. I do not remember it being this long. I don't know how as a teenager I sat through this. But so this is the thing is, I don't feel like it's long whilst I'm watching it. It doesn't drag anywhere for me, but it is long. Mm. Bits of it did for me, but I think it was just because of the focus on characters I didn't really care about. Yeah. So for those bits, I was like, okay, hurry up. <laughs> like, I, I get why this is happening, but come on. I always find it very, very interesting how quickly Act 2 moves. Yeah. And how many years we go through in Act 2. Whereas Act 1, we're, we're essentially seeing two different ages. Full disclosure, with this episode, we're a little bit ill. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I've I've got a cold, so I do apologise in advance if my voice sounds off. We saw this Tuesday evening, and about Wednesday evening I started feeling rotten. Yep. So, apologies. I'll do my best to edit out any sniffs or <laughs> anything like that. I'm sure you'll be fine. I love how this show opens... I love that we have this non-linear narrative. We start at the end. Mm. And I think it's really, really beautiful that we have like the orchestra and we have the narrator come out and we see Mickey and Eddie walk to their stretches. Yeah, I was going to say that this is like my first thing that I was like, I must remember to talk about this. So... I don't really remember this from when I was a kid, but I vivid. I do not remember them having like red velvet stretches with yeah. a cloth that then gets put over you. But I really liked that. Well, I remember them being on stretches and that they put a cloth over them. Yes. I don't remember the cloth being attached or it being like this opulent red velvet stretcher with like golden handles. Yeah. But I really liked that when they covered up Eddie... It, the police officer took a lot of care, but when he covered up Mickey, he just sort of chucked the blanket over yeah. him. And I think it's really, really interesting. The fact that this happens behind the curtain as well, that we've got this sheer curtain that's mm-hmm. illuminated. We see this with the narrator kind of just watching. But I love this. And it ties into that idea of all, all, all these themes that Willie Russell wants to communicate. Because... This is Brechtian theatre. We, we we spoke about this. Yeah. And the whole idea of Brecht's work is that we're not encouraged to gain any emotional attachment to our characters. 
we're not there for characters, we're there for the narrative, we're there for our lives to be transformed, that we are there to gain some kind of insight and leave changed. And because we start at the end, and because we have these small little details that show Eddie being covered carefully, respectfully, and Mickey just kind of, you know, thrown on, we're left wondering what's happened. And with the narrator coming out and saying, did you hear the story of the Johnston twins? Uh, did you ever hear of the mother so cruel? There's a stone in place of her heart. Then right. bring her on and you see how she can play the part. That. that one line yeah. about the stone in place of her heart. Yeah. You've been quoting this all week. And uh, every time you've said it, I feel like it feels a bit harsh. <laughs> a little bit. Feels a little bit harsh. Like I get why now that obviously we've watched it yeah. and I understand why they say that, but it still feels a little bit harsh. Which mother do you think the narrator is referencing? Uh, Mrs. Not Johnstone. Mrs. Lyons. Yeah, because I... she looks back at him when he said that. So. But is it not interesting that that is the precursor to then straight into welcoming Mrs. Johnstone and into her song? No, because the whole point is. Mrs. Johnstone's got all the love but no money. Yes. And it's the opposite for the other one. What's her name? Mrs. Lyons. Right. I think it's interesting because you're led to believe that Mrs. Johnston is this mother with a stone in place of her heart. But it's not. I think it's Mrs. Lyons. But, you know, to go back to my point, we're never going to see Mickey and Eddie. And we certainly shouldn't invest in them as characters because we know they are going to die at the end of this. Mm -hmm. We start with this spoiler we're at z and we're now going to go all the way back to a yeah we're here to learn why they die we're here to learn what's happened and maybe change our opinions as a result Mm. and this is epic theater you know theater that doesn't take place like romeo and juliet over three days this takes place over 20 years give or take yeah so it's a really long narrative Mm. for two hours 50 minutes to cover that amount of time so there's a lot of montage with songs and narration i i think it's a really great example of this this brechtian style yeah i like the narrator so we've we've spoken the preamble about the narrator's role and robbie scotcher said to me that he just sees as he is this character who has a story to tell And he has to go and he has to tell it because there's a part of him that feels it's important. Yeah. Now, since he told me that, I went into it this time with a bit of musical knowledge that I have acquired thanks to you. Mm. I saw him as the the storyteller, the lead character in Pippin. Yeah. And obviously the, the finale is that we have to sacrifice Pippin. But isn't that an interesting comparison that you have this narrator who comes and has to tell the story and has to sacrifice these twins for the sake of the storytelling? Yeah. And it's obviously not the same way as Pippin. Like, if you're listening to this and you've seen Pippin but not seen Blood Brothers, that's not how it ends. We don't have this Pippin-esque twist. But it's interesting to think that he has to kill these actors, especially because we see them walk on and take it. Their roles, they are destined to die I just think it's very, very... That, that's how I started to watch it. But what about you? Did you watch the narrator with a particular view? Not really. I was mostly just watching to see 
because that was another thing I remembered sort of as soon as he was on was that he was always there and that he would do stuff in the background so like there's one bit really later on where he like clicks and then the lights will go off yeah so I was just sort of watching whenever he was around I tended not to be watching what else was happening because I was just looking at him which is one of those background things that I really enjoy in shows yeah but yeah there's some nice moments. There's very, very few moments that the narrator isn't on stage. But it's quite nice where you're sat and you've obviously got the lights up on Mrs. Lyons and Mrs. Johnstone. But you can just see the shadow of the narrator watching. And you have different moments as well where you have him looking through a window. Like <laughs> dear Evan Hansen waving through a window. Yeah. You just have him watching the action through a window and he's not involved. He's just watching. And it's so interesting. He spends the bulk of this on stage, but he also brings props on an, on stage and takes them off. Mm. It's his story that he's telling. Yeah. And we could say, as we go through this review, how often he's on or off stage. He's basically on stage the whole time. Yeah, he In, really is. Interesting, though, did you know that the role of the narrator has changed? since it was first performed, that originally the narrator would multi-role and become other characters. So... I feel like, yes, because I feel like he was the milkman. He was the milkman, and he was also the teachers, and he was also the conductor, and would play all these different roles. Yes, do you know um, on the bus conductor? Oh, right, okay. All of these different roles would be played by the narrator. And I have a copy of the script in front of me. Mm -hmm. And just for example... We have at the end of Marilyn Monroe, which we'll talk about in a second, but we have the stage direction for an irate, an irate milkman, in brackets, the narrator, rushes in to rudely interrupt the song. Yeah. So you had this idea that he was more part of the story, which then ties into the Pippin sense of the multi-role for me. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. But yes, we get our introduction now to young Mrs. Johnstone, uh, bring her on, come judge for yourselves how she came to play this part, and we go straight into Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. She's aged 30, but looks more like 50. And Lynn Paul, I think, is absolutely phenomenal as Mrs. Johnstone. And you can see why people have like voted her the definitive Mrs. Johnstone. Oh, absolutely. What did you think about the casting of a 70-year-old woman as this 30, mid-30s character. I don't think it matters, because yeah. it's all in hindsight. In the same way that there are certain shows where you have adults playing kids where I'm not about it. Yes. But there are, like, a few exceptions to that. So, like, I love the maggots in Matilda, which is the adults who play children. Yep. They're called the maggots, which I think is hilarious anyway. But you have them on stage as a part of the ensemble to aid the kids that are on stage, but also to fill out space and take over things in case one of the kids does forget, which obviously is there for more necessity than anything else. Yeah. But, you know, I love their performances. is always really funny. I loved Peter and the Starcatchers, where you had all adults playing all the kids. And again, it was very much a, we are adults telling you this story, like with Blood Brothers. Yeah. So I, I don't have a problem with the adults playing the kids. And I think it's done in a way where you're like, 
oh yeah, but kids do act like that. Yeah. So it's fine. One of the things you'd said to me that you found quite interesting about Mrs. Johnston was the fact that one of the lines we get in her song is, by the time I was 25, I looked like 42. And you said that it's quite nice that you can have this idea that she is this younger character, but, you know, she's had such a hard life of raising seven hungry mouths, a husband that's clearly out cheating on her, and she's having to work to pay the bills... Mm-hmm. That actually she is just this 25-year-old character who looks old before her time. Yeah. And I thought that was really nice. I like this. And yes, we meet Mrs. Johnstone. We learn very much that she has had this tough life. She got pregnant very, very early. Uh, and then her husband is nasty. Says he won't go dancing with a wife is twice the size of Marilyn Monroe. We are supposed to really dislike dad. And the actor who's playing the dad does a really good job at just coming across so unlikable. Which is why I like the dad theory for yeah. the narrator, where it's like him in hindsight. Obviously, we're given no backup to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the idea that it could be him in hindsight being like, is this my fault? Yeah. Because like, it's not, but he didn't help, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He, like, you, yeah, you abandoned the kids. So she's had a tough life. And yeah. we learn that she's struggling to pay the bills. She can't even pay for milk. Mm-hmm. She's begging the milkman, please, 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 I've got yeah. a job next week. He says to her, you're £3 something behind, which is a lot of money yes. for the time. When is this set? I say for the time. 50s. It, right, we've okay, not got sense. a definitive thing, but 50s. It's just because there are bits later on, like the way that 15-year-old Linda dresses Yeah, is either really just like teenage girls have dressed like that always or it's it, done modernish day just so that we like recognize what but she's also going it's for. a funny joke isn't it yeah i like the joke so this is the thing this is a tragedy but we have some really great jokes in blood brothers mm-hmm. so we have mrs johnson begging the milkman saying i need the milk i'm pregnant and he replies well don't look at me love i might be a milkman but it's got nothing, nothing to, do to do with, with me. me yeah i like that <laughs> i like that and there's some really nice moments in this where we do have a lot of comedy you know this isn't like miss saigon where we're quite down throughout the whole thing mm-hmm. we have a moment of being a little bit down but we laugh and as we get into act two there's less laughter but more of the down and out moments yeah mrs johnstone is pinning all her hopes on this job so much so that she says to the kids that when i have this we'll have all this good food that we've never had before we'll live like bright young things like marilyn monroe then we cut into the lion's house Mm -hmm. and one of the things i think this show always does really really well and again it ties into the brechtian idea of this we're not supposed to believe this is real but what we're supposed to have is still this sense of location. We don't hide the mechanics of the stage. We see the facade for the lion's house I've just dropped down. We just have this wall on the side of the stage. We don't disguise the rest of the stage space, which is great. I forgot it's on an incline, but we have like the streets and the outsides of the house. Mm -hmm. All we have is the facade drop and people wheel the sofa on. It's either a sofa or a dining table or like it's not a dining table it's like a kitchen table yeah but i think that's really really important for this show because the transitions have to be so quick Mm. you know they're done during musical sequences dropping them in 
is a lot better than having a full scene change. Mm -hmm. And this show has always done it well. What do you think of Mrs. Lyons? (laughs) She seems all right at the start, but it's very, like, very much like, okay, this is the employer talking to her employee and not understanding at all what any of this would mean. Yeah. We have two very different scenes in quick succession with Mrs. Lyons and Mrs. Johnston, paused only Mm. by the scene with the gynecologist. The first scene... I'm not your milkman anymore. (laughs) I'm a gynecologist. The first scene shows Mrs. Johnston working, and Mm. they get along, they chat. We sense that Mrs. Lyons is miserable. They bought such a big house for the babies, but unfortunately they can't have children. She says the line, I wanted to adopt... But Mr. Lyons is, well, he says he wanted his own son, not someone else's. Myself, I believe that an adopted child can become one's own. Mrs. Johnstone shows some sympathy and says, it's funny that you can't have any kids and I keep having them. Yeah, good. So that line, everywhere else in the show that we see Mr. Lyons, I was like, I feel kind of sorry for this guy because none of this is really about him yeah and he's just getting swept up in all of it and we know it's going to end badly and it doesn't even just end badly quickly this is like his entire life yeah where this lie has been building around him and oh my god like what would happen after that i'd be so interested to know well but my dude just adopts or go you're rich go get ivf like go do something was ivf available in the 50s I'm not educated enough to know, but... Not in the same way it is now. There were, uh, like, treatments. But this is it. It's not his story. It's the story of the mothers. Mm. You know, the fact that Mr. Lyons, the actor, multi-roles, he comes on again and again as different characters. Yeah. Whereas Mrs. Lyons is always Mrs. Lyons. Mrs. Johnstone is always Mrs. Johnstone. Mickey, Eddie, Linda, they're always themselves. But Mr. Lyons isn't important to this. Yeah. But I would like to, I would love to know what happens after. Like, what's his thought? Does the marriage fall apart when he's like, you lied to me? Mm. Does he feel this sense of guilt that he's like, I told you this should be, I wanted my own child. You made me believe that this child was my own. Is he going to be really angry or is he going to be like that he was conned? Or is he going to be angry that he didn't know? It's like, I'd have loved this boy regardless. Yeah. But yes, we also learn here something that is so important for this whole show, that Mrs. Johnstone is superstitious. Because as she's tidying up, she leaves the room and Mrs. Lyons puts new shoes upon the table. Mrs. Johnstone panics. Yep. And Miss Lyons shrugs it off, laughing at the superstition. Yeah. She doesn't think there's anything to it. It's all just... Yeah, it's just a silly superstition. Yeah. We have a brief interlude between the two mothers as we have the gynecologist. And again, my script would say the narrator exits to re-enter as a gynecologist. Mm -hmm. And again, a funny joke. Milk's not due for another week. I've given up the milk round. I've gone into medicine. I'm your gynecologist. gynecologist. (laughs) It's like, God, no. Thank you. And he examines her. The way this is done is nice and simple. She's not in the stirrups. He just has like a listening cone. He's on his knees. It's an if we, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's pressing his, his ear against it. And she says, you know, we could scrape by with another mouth to feed. And mm. he replies, mouths. 
She panics and he dismisses her. He's like, yep, yeah, mouths, on to the next one, please. Off stage and straight back into the lion's residence mm. where now they've swapped roles. And I really find that fascinating because whereas Miss Lyons was the one who's a little bit down, we've now got Mrs. Johnston being the one who is a little bit down. Yeah. Do you feel any sympathy towards Mrs. Lyons in this scene? Kind of, only because she's that desperate. Like, you would have to be really desperate to feel like you could get away with this. And I think my obvious comparison is the uh, is Mr. Shu's wife on Glee. Yes. Where it is basically the same thing that she tries to do. But, like... I can see why you would get away with it in the 50s. It makes way more sense now that you've said that. Yeah. Because, okay, I can believe she would get away with this. Like, you can pretend that you've been going to the doctors and go somewhere else. Yeah. And, like, who's going to know? Well, especially because her husband, as we learn, is, is away on business. Mm. He would have left, because he's been gone nine months, would have left when she got pregnant. And he's due back just around the time the babies are born. It's perfect. Yeah. But the whole getting her to swear on the bible that's too far it plays into the superstition though that she yeah. knows she's got her so when i do this activity in my lessons we go through this script but there's two different playing styles one where mrs Lyons is just desperate mm-hmm. and she's a nice character she just really really wants a baby she's learned that she's going to have twins and that mrs johnson can barely cope with the kid she's already got it's the perfect opportunity why not help mm. she says the promise you can see him every day yeah so one of the styles is sympathetic but the other style is manipulative mm-hmm. where she knows what she's doing and she's got this opportunity and like you said there's opportunity there to lie that no one will ever know yeah and she's established that this character is already superstitious so she can play off that mm-hmm. she's the ball is in mrs lyons is caught here and yeah. it's her reactions that are so good about this so the way paula tappenden does this is just like she's suddenly all alert and she goes back to having the power and authority in her voice mm-hmm. there's this nice moment where you know she says twins you're expecting twins and the narrator speaks we mark the moment really well everything else freezes the narrator says you know his little bit of story which again really good about this show is the fact that we keep pausing in between and mrs lyons tries to convince mrs johnstone to have you know the baby and give it to her Mm -hmm. and we get my child as a song yeah which ends with the he'd grow up to be a credit to me yes yeah but mrs johnson saying credit to me but then changing credit to you which is so sad but the way that um the actress who played mrs lyons in this version played it was like she was annoyed when mrs johnson said that it was like dude she's still inside of her this kid is still inside of her also why have they? Why has everyone decided these are going to be boys? That's my question. Because they, it's in hindsight. I know it's in hindsight. No, but that's that is an interesting point. Why do they know? But I thought that right from 
not for obviously we've seen the die everything the show starts we find out it's twins and everybody says he straight away yeah but she has more girls than boys as kids perhaps it's a hindsight thing the narrator's telling us this story so self so we're just saying he because because we know they're going to be boys but you're right that's a good point like like if one of them had been a girl is mrs johnston keeping the girl because mr lyons wants a son like yeah that could have been like i would love to see this played out where mickey is a girl it'd be very very interesting it would be very very interesting i'm sure somebody would make it into something gross and creepy but i don't know how you get across the whole linda being pregnant thing because the line at the end with Eddie, I've been thinking. You were friends you when Linda got pregnant. But it's in, no, because that's so important. It is important because it's all part of Mickey's self-destruction. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's the catalyst. That needs to happen. Mm. You're right. It'd be very, very interesting. Like I'm not I, thinking so much about that part. I'm just about like the... How yeah. devalued as a person would Mickey be if she was a girl? Yeah. And finding out that, like, oh, why why didn't... Because that would be the, the alternate, isn't that, like, it's when she would find out that it's, like, yeah. you kept me and this is my life. Yeah. But he got to go and be rich and go to university and have all this stuff just because he's a man. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that would be interesting. Yeah. One of the things... Drama lessons. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think is really sad about this song is obviously just the difference in the things they'd have. So, like, Mrs. Lyons... Have his like, own bike with both wheels Yeah. On. You know, he'd have his own toys or garden to play in, and Miss Johnson's like, he could make too much noise. No neighbours would ever complain. Mm -hmm. Like, she knows that she can't provide this life, and she'd be giving him something that he'd never get. And it is really sad. She's fully aware that her kids do not have opportunity growing up. Yeah. Which is sad. They end this song and Mrs. Johnston's agreed to it. Mrs. Lyons is very sympathetic as well. It's like, oh, great. Well, now to business, though. We're, we're, we're going to have to uh, uh, do this, do this, do this. And mm -hmm. um, Mrs. Johnston's very, very confused. Oh, you're going shopping. I do the shopping. Mrs. Lyons says, not anymore. I want to no, shop. Everyone needs to see me. Yes. Which is, again, I think you can't back out of this because people will know yeah and this is the thing like this only works because mrs johnstone doesn't have any friends <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely because i'm my brain is in like true crime mode thinking about this right yeah because i more than <laughs> more than i liked the show i want to know what the fallout from this is Who's yeah. going to prison here? Because somebody has to, and I feel like it's Mrs. Lyons. Well, except they can afford a lawyer. Yeah, exactly. It'll be Mrs. Johnstone. Surely. Right. Except she's already, by the end of the show, what, 60, 70? Her kids are grown up and having yeah. kids. Well. She's 26 at the start. She was, yeah, 26 at the start. I'm going to go forward 21 years. Mm -hmm. So she's about 47, 48. So, like, is it too late to send her to prison? Well, in the same way, her confession at the end, it's privately. The only people that hear it are her, Mickey and Eddie. So yeah, probably no one. Yeah, but then no there's the one. whole thing. This is my favourite part of the whole show, and we're really getting ahead of ourselves here. 
But right at the end of the show, where we go back to the beginning-ish, slightly before the beginning, Mr. Lyons covers Eddie with the coat, so she covers Mickey with her coat, and then she kisses Eddie on the head. And Mr. Lyons is like, what is happening Yeah, because he has no idea. Right. So, like, what has to happen at that point? (laughs) Somebody has to tell him. Somebody's going to be having a conversation. But I certainly think a fallout is that there's going to be a divorce. (laughs) Mrs. Lyons is going to some kind of psychiatric yeah. hospital because she needs oh, just help. Way. I've got a really fun way to end this episode. Mm. I say fun, interesting. But Mrs. Lyons, we get a beat of music and you have the narrator step forward and the narrator is holding the Bible and he's there and she takes it because he's planting this idea and he's orchestrating it like the little devil puppet master he is. Mm-hmm. And she says we must make a binding agreement. She makes them swear on the Bible. And the narrator says, there's a pact being sealed. There's a deal being born. Mrs. Johnston is very, very shook. Why do we have to do that? We get, nobody must ever know. We have to make an agreement. And then goes, it's a very sinister thing. You know, the way Mrs. Lyon says, nobody must ever know. And then she suddenly switches into, right off to the shop, side pop. Yeah. And we have this heartbeat sound. Dudum, dudum. And it grows and it's so powerful mm. and you have the narrator looking at mrs johnstone as he says a debt is a debt and must be paid and then you suddenly get stop the heartbeats lights go up and baby's screaming as she wheels the pram on because we're now at the end of the pregnancy she has given birth to mickey and Eddie. oh my god what did the nurses say to her because i thought it was so funny There was something, like, so there's two nurses, yeah. and as she walks away from them, they say something like, oh, you sure you should be up and around? Yeah. And she says something about, like... Oh, Having no, babies is like clockwork I, to me. I'm used to it, popping them out, I'll be back yeah. at work in the afternoon. Like, <laughs> it's like a whole... We have this really brilliant scene that's there is has some nice comedy, but it's also got this really sad message to it as she goes home with the brand new babies to see her items being repossessed. Mm. And you have, you know, one man is being really nice. He's all like, I'm so sorry, I didn't want to do this. And then another guy comes and goes, well, you shouldn't have blooming paid. You should not have paid for it and bought it if you knew you weren't going to keep up the payments. Yeah. And it is really sad. Like, it shows that she's always just five minutes away from some kind of misfortune. Mm-hmm. But even this scene, you know, as, as sad as it is, you've got this funny moment where the catalogue man looks at the babies and does the... <laughs> Oh, yeah, because Mr. Lyons does it later on as yes. well. It's like a weird thing that they're doing it. And then takes the teddy bear. <laughs> and then reaches in to the pram, takes the teddy bear out. Mm-hmm. We have one of the most powerful songs in the whole play here as we get easy terms. And Mrs. Johnson is singing about how difficult it is to give up a baby. And the fact that all she wants to do is make ends meet. And she can't. And I think this is such a powerful song. And I think... I think Limpool nailed it. I just think I felt this emotion at this moment and I felt so bad for this character. Mm. And just as she kind of reaches the end, the pinnacle of this song, Mrs. Lyons enters. Yeah. This is the one with all the, like, living on the never-never. Yes. Constant as the changing weather, never sure. 
Who's at the door? Yeah. I, yeah. This is one of the ones that I remembered. As they were singing, I was like, I know every word to the song. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. And Mrs. Lyons comes in and she says, why didn't you tell me you'd given birth? Mrs. Johnson just wants them for a bit longer. The way she says, they go together, they're a pair. Here's my, my question. Yeah. The next thing that she says is, obviously, I'm going to take one of the babies mrs johnson is like don't tell me which one just go and choose yes mrs Lyons says the line i'll take the like what was she gonna say what made her pick eddie because she's looking at them when she said it she's like oh i'll take the smaller one or like i'll take yep how does she decide is it the one that smiles at her i think she does take the smaller one yeah because every version i've ever seen eddie is shorter than mickey fair enough and i think I like the idea that she looks at the two of them and is like, if this is the bigger one, because twins tend, this is a generalization, but twins tend to have a bigger and a smaller twin when they're babies. So does she pick the smaller one thinking, well, the bigger one will be okay. The smaller one will need more care. And that's what she wants. She's like, somebody buy this woman a cat. Come on. Yeah. Like, she's, she's so desperate for something to pay attention to her and love her back. And that doesn't work with kids. No. I just... She really just needed a dog. <laughs> like, yeah. come on. Well, this is it. She says that her husband's due back tomorrow. She has to have the baby. Mm. Really, really convenient. Could you imagine if her husband had got back a day or two early? Yeah. But, yeah. Well, no, she'd be fine because men aren't allowed in the birthing room. So you'd just pay somebody off. True. But... She takes one of the babies. Mrs. Johnston doesn't want to know who. As Mrs. Lyons goes to leave, she says, thank you, I'll see you next week. Take the week off, even though she's due back the next day. At full pay, of course. Yes. And off she goes. And this is where we get the voiceovers. she has to tell the kids. Yeah, the voiceovers from the kids. What happened to the other twin, ma'am? Twinny, yeah. yeah. And she says that the twin died. He's gone up to heaven. Jesus and the angels, mm-hmm. and the kids like, what's heaven like? Will he have his own bike? We both. I on. have my own bike. <laughs> yeah, and instantly she goes straight back to the. Let's look in the catalogue then, and she, you know, is overwhelmed. You get a nice like cavalcade of all of the kids making noises and requests at this point. You can see how difficult. Like this is why she's in that mess. She can't say no to them, which mm. fair enough. I'm not here to judge her parenting. Well, I don't think it's that at this particular no. moment, is it? It's like, how do I get them to actually shut up? Yeah. Because it, this is like too emotional for her to deal with. So she's like, okay, well, let's do this thing that always gets you quiet. And it is overwhelming, but mm. you feel sorry for her. It, all of this it does a really good job at making you feel sorry for this character. And then we are back in the Lions household. And this time we see Mr. Lions, who is cooing over Eddie. Mm-hmm. From a distance, a very, you know, upright and, oh, hello, Edward, I'm so happy that I'm your father. You're growing into such a good young man, aren't you? <laughs> and, uh... Kind of hands-off parenting that we all love. Yes. And, you know, Mrs. Johnson and him are having a conversation. He doesn't seem to have a problem with her. He's quite nice mm-hmm. to her. It's like, yes, I'm very, very proud. And, of course, I'm proud of Jennifer. Well, it's one of those, like... It's not my job to be concerned about the star. I've been rewatching Downton Abbey, yes. as I've been saying in all recent episodes. And that, that comes across there as well, is like the daddy Downton is very hands-off about like the housemaids because they're the ones that they actually, you actually see around the house, but 
It's not his job to be in yeah. charge of them. It's that's his wife's job. Yeah. So like he just about knows their names. <laughs> and this is it. Whereas he's quite social about it. He knows that she's just a person that they hire. He's polite. Mm. So like, you clean my house. I will be civil to you. Yeah. The biggest difference we have here is the fact that Mrs. Lyons does not look amused and is not happy at the presence of Mrs. Johnstone. She mm. sat upright and you can tell there's this look of disgust on her face. And as Mrs. Johnstone goes to pick up Eddie, she shouts. We've not seen this side yet of Mrs. Lyons. Mm. And she gives Mrs. Johnstone a task to complete. And she says to Mr. Lyons, her work is deteriorated. All she does is, is coo over the baby. I want to get rid of her. Yeah. Mr. Lyons' response is, well, isn't that what women do? All women like babies. Yeah. Yeah, he's a women like babies. Yes. <laughs> he just sort of poo poos the idea, like it's not a big deal. Well, he does because the way he says, "Isn't this some kind of depression thing? Don't women get depressed after, you know?" And Which, uh, like the only good thing I can say about that is that, like, at least he's aware that that's a thing. Yeah. Like for a guy in the fifties, like I know the bar is low, but like this is it. He's not the most progressive man. He's obviously no, and he doesn't pay any attention to her, which is exactly what her problem is. Yes, like, and I'm sure that the point is maybe when they realised they couldn't have a baby, they grew apart. Yes, because that's something they wanted together, but. He obviously doesn't have any time for her. No. Like working aside, even when he's at home. Yeah, well, this is it. She says, I want to get rid of her. Okay, you know the house anyway. I've got to go off to a board meeting. Yeah. He's she... like, can I have £50? He's like, I guess. Sure, why yes. not? And she uses the excuse that it's going to be to buy baby things. But it's going to be to pay off Mrs. Johnstone. So she summons Mrs. Johnstone in and she says, we're going to fire you. Mm-hmm. Your work has deteriorated, but I work the way I've always worked while we're not happy. And, you know, Mrs. Johnstone is like devastated. Cause how is she going to survive without this job? Yeah. Mrs. Johnstone says to pay her off. And she says, no, I'm not taking your money, but I am taking my son. Yeah. She says, if I'm going, then I'm taking my kid with me. <laughs> Mrs. Lyons is like, do you think the police would believe you? You sold your son. Yeah. And then she gives her the £50. Yeah. I, and and this is where we also get the, the more of the superstition, because she says, if you tell anyone, and these children learn of the truth, then you know what will happen, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know what they say about twins secretly parted, that if either twin learns that he was once a pair, they shall both die immediately. And... It's brilliant because she knows Mrs. Johnstone will believe this. Yeah. And it buys her that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And off, you know, off she goes. What do you think the police would do in this circumstance? Do you think they'd listen? Only maybe if they were from the same area that Mrs. Johnson was. But we, if, if she got the right person. But we know that the police are already on her case. That we because already, of Sammy. And because of all the other kids. We know that family services, everyone, she is known to them. Do you think they listen, take her seriously against a pillar of the community like Mr. and Mrs. Lyons? No, probably not. So, like I say, you'd have to really get the right person. Yeah. And that's unlikely. Yeah, she knows full well that there's no point to this. And I think mm. she gives up. 
Oh, yeah, she'd be put away. If Mrs. Lyons was like, this woman's crazy, she's gone... She keeps trying to steal my baby. I fired her. She's got a grievance against me. She's trying to steal my child. Yeah, yeah they would 100% be like, okay. And we don't need to see a scene where she goes to the police. Like, just having the conversation about superstition is enough. But there's so much in the background. It explains why she wouldn't go to the police. Mm. The narrator steps forward for the first big number that they do. I love the narrator songs. They are some of my favourite songs throughout this whole show. And we get Shoes Upon the Table. And this is where we first get, you know, the devil's got your number. You know, he's gonna find ya. You know, he's right behind ya. Mm. I love this song. And I love like the rock opera voice yeah. that we have with it. And this is where you first start to feel like, because he's interacting with Mrs. Johnstone, but she doesn't see him. He takes the money at the end and he puts it in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the implication that she did take the money in the end. Yeah. And it's just a way of getting off stage, but she took that money. But it's just the way that he's staring at her, waving the money in her face. It's like, you've done this. And it's like, because this song is so, like, gleeful, it just ties into the whole, like... Him being the devil thing. Yeah. So he exits. Mrs. Johnson goes in, and we have cut forward seven years. Because we finally meet Mickey... Johnston mm-hmm. and I think we both struggled to understand what Mickey was saying as a kid it was it was more difficult here in act one than it was in act two yeah and the only reason I knew what he was saying is because as he started his have you heard about our Sammy monologue yeah like it all came flooding back and that's another one that I definitely know all the words to because I was like, it's not even a song. But I just remember being forced to like chant it with my class. I wish I was our Sammy. Yeah. Our Sammy's nearly 10. I, I feel really bad for this because one of the first things he does is the doors bolt. He's like, oh, did you think I was the tax man again? Mm. Like, that's so sad. But that the kid knows that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's seven and he knows full well that there's some kind of threat whenever going home. Like home is a safe place. But he's been playing with his friends and they've gone to the wrong side of the park. And he gets in trouble and he's told, You're going to stay here where I can see you. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get, I wish I was our Sammy. You know, he thinks it's just because he's seven. I really miss playing out. Do you? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a throwback to times gone by. It really it? is. That's all this made me think about because I was like, Oh, my God. I like remember the. If the street lamps came on, yeah. you were in trouble yeah. if you weren't home already and the and street like lamps A car was on. coming, so you take everything to the side and then you go back out the second the car had moved. You're like, car! On the scooters, car. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, there's still this innocence to him, so he doesn't think anything of it other than just the fact it's because he's seven. Mm-hmm. But he's not. He's nearly eight. And, you know, he looks up to Sammy, but not in, like, hero worship. He's just like, I want to do the thing Sammy does because... He's nearly 10 and he's my big brother. And, you know, Sammy, we've not even met the character yet, but Mm. we get a really negative impression of him, which is really good. You know, we learn about how he draws nudie women in the baths when he goes swimming. We also learn about how he wheezes straight through the letterbox of the house next door to us. Yeah, but uh, Mickey's not tall enough to do it. He had to stand on a crate. Yeah. And it's a really fun little monologue. We get the playfulness of Mickey... You know, there's some nice moments where he's like scooting along, pretending he's playing with his gun. Mm. 
this is the funny thing with this show. I know people who dislike Blood Brothers simply because of the adults playing kids. Like, that's it. I know people who went to see it, like West End, or go to see it in theatres, and they leave when the kids start playing, or the adults start playing kids. I really like it. You know, I think it's... I'm sure I knew that, like, you would know that in advance, right? I don't know if you would. But I think it's such a shame, because I really like it. And again, it, it ties into this whole idea of we're not supposed to emotionally invest in these characters because they are adults playing kids. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. That's that's how I view it. I'm not supposed to invest in Eddie or Mickey. A, they're going to die. So what's the point? I'm learning about why they're going to die. What did we... Oh, I was going to say, what show did we watch where that also happens? And I was like, why would I watch this? But it was Rogue One. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. It was like, I was forced to go and see Rogue One. Yeah. And that is one of those films that I was I went into being like, you cannot force me to care about any of these characters. Yeah. Because I you... know what happens at yeah. the end. But that, I think that's the point is we're here looking to see why has this happened. And mm. if you had kids playing these characters, I'm going to become more emotionally invested because I see them as real kids. Whereas Can you here, imagine if they did a version of this where they cast kids and then a teenager version and then the adults? It'd be the Lion King, wouldn't it? <laughs> Shrek. Yeah. Uh, and then Eddie comes on to meet Mickey. And I love this scene. You I, say the most smashing things. We it's, <laughs> one of the, it, it, it's an assessment <laughs> we do is is you know for for our students to stage this scene. Yeah. I, I I see this scene so frequently, but it's so much fun. You know, I love the bit where you know Eddie gives Mickey a sweet, and he's like, "Can I have one for our Sammy?" He takes, and the great thing he does here is he has he takes the whole bag, he takes two sweets out. And he puts the bag in his pocket and, and gives, gives the two sweets the back two to sweets Eddie. Back. And Eddie's quite pleased by that. Yeah. He's quite happy with that. We have the, you say, the most smashing things. He does not have... Again, like, I'm, I don't know whether this is just me taking it, but and you can tell me as the teacher in this situation, but based on context clues, Eddie doesn't have any friends. No. Because Mrs. Lyons doesn't let him have any friends. No. Like, she's not having playdates at her house, is she? He's probably... He goes to private school. Yeah, he's probably just been allowed to go to the corner shop to get himself some sweets. Mm. And he's seen this boy that he's quite interested because he saw him playing his side of the park. He's not allowed to come to this park either, but they are. He definitely doesn't have a social life. No, he doesn't. He doesn't know how to talk to kids. No, but I really like the bits where he's like, you know, you say the most smashing things. We get the nice moment with the F word and he whispers (laughs) and they, they start laughing and then... When we finally get the reveal of exactly what that F word is, that's one of my favourite parts of this show. Right. The, the like, misuse of the F word. It's great, isn't it? It's he doesn't so know what it means, but it sounds great. It sounds smashing. <laughs> I'm going to look it up in the dictionary. And we get this nice moment where Mickey's like, what's that? Dictionary. It's thingy, in it? And you have this nice moment where they're both silent on stage. And Mickey does his thing with his sweater that's so old and like the costume his costume he's so grimy and he's wearing this big sweater vest that's got holes in that he can put around his knees and stretch it out mm-hmm. and you have this nice competition where he puts it around his knees and eddie follows and just barely gets it over because mm-hmm. eddie shows him this little watch 
and he does that and then Eddie's like well I can do it too and then Mickey spreads his legs and Eddie's like nope I'm not doing that mm. I can't do that and it's nice and then they go into the the whole our Sammy will be here soon I hope he's in a good mood we get the story about how he fell out the window yep here's a plate in his head and one of my favourite jokes a side plate yeah it's a side plate no it's on the top <laughs> yeah and yes we get the will you be my best friend if you want Nice moment where, how old are you, Eddie? Seven. And Mickey gets all up. He's like, oh, I'm older than you. I'm nearly eight. Mm -hmm. And Eddie puts on a gruff voice to try and sound intimidating. He's like, well, I'm almost eight as well. And this is where they learn that they were both born on July the 18th. Mm -hmm. And all they think is, oh, that means we can be blood brothers. Do you want to be my blood brother, Eddie? I like the reaction to the stabbing. I, I, I tell you what, really responsibly. Yeah. They're not showing like in previous performances where it's like a nick in the hand. It's literally just a, a prick on your finger and then you, you put the finger on your hand as opposed to like actually mixing two cuts yeah <laughs> thought that was a bit more responsible one of my favourite bits is when they do the the kind of repeat after me oh, I will always defend my brother <laughs> yeah and then Eddie goes all quiet boy I will always defend my brother yeah this is very like the way that kids over dramatize yeah. random stuff. I like it. I think it does a really good job at showing the two different worlds, you know, costume wise, uh, posture, the way they walk, the way they talk. Mm -hmm. It's really, really clear that you've got the two social class divides. Yeah. With the smashing. Yeah. Just everything about it is very, very clear. Sammy comes in and bickers with Mickey. He keeps he keeps trying to spit at him. Yeah, there's oh, that was a... something he says earlier. Is he can spit you in the eye from ten paces, and every time a hit. Yeah, so he covers his face with his sweater burst. Yeah, like really quickly. It's what time. Sammy does. Is that's what he's known for is spitting. Mm -hmm. uh, Eddie sells Mickey down the river. He's like, you you do have some sweets. You ask for one for Sammy, and they're invited to a worm funeral, and just as they're about to head off, Mrs. Johnson comes out. Mickey introduces him to his mum. He says, look, mum, it's my brother, Eddie. And her face goes like white, predictably. Yep. And then you have the, my blood brother. And she panics. She sends Mickey and Sammy in. Sammy throws his nice, like, teenage, not even teenage, just, like, nice little child strop on stage. Yeah, he, like, drags his feet and is like, ugh. It's like the way he just throws his arms around. It was like watching a child have a tantrum, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Johnstone sends the boys in and she has a conversation with Eddie saying, your mum would be angry, but you're not allowed to come down here. I never want to see you here again. And says, beat it before the bogeyman gets you. And off he wanders, we get the reprise of Easy Terms... Yeah, because this is where we realise the reason why she doesn't know who he is is because even though she was working for Mrs. Lyons, she doesn't know what they called yeah. him. No, she knows that he's Eddie. She knows that he was Edward. Yeah. 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 And it obviously it's been seven years and she's like, I, I always wonder what would happen and would I actually recognise you if I saw you? Mm. And heartbreakingly, she doesn't. No. So this reprise of Easy Terms is great. And then we cut up into the Lyons family again. Mm -hmm. They're reading a book with each other and Mr. Lyons has to leave. So Eddie gets a dictionary. He asks, what, how do you spell bogeyman? Mm -hmm. Mr. Lyons is like, ah, ask your mother. Off he goes. 
And Mrs. Lyon says, there's no such thing as a bogeyman. It's a silly superstition that a bad mother would say. The bogeyman will get you. Mm. Will he get me? And then we hear the doorbell. Mickey comes in like a hurricane. Yeah. Like, we, we should just rename him Miley Cyrus. Because he comes in like a wrecking ball. And, you know, they're all being boys, frantic about, like, messing everything. And Mrs. Lyon's a little bit perturbed by this. And she goes, oh, are you, are you one of Eddie's friends from school? Mm. And he says, no, this is Mickey. He lives down the other end. We're born on the same day. We're, we're blood brothers. And it's at that point when Mrs. Lyons is like, it's time for bed. But mummy, it's early. She kicks him out. Yeah. And says, I don't want you playing with boys like that. And this is where you get that really nice moment where you're like, where we learn what the F word is. Because Eddie's like, oh, I, I like Mickey more than you. I don't love you. And you don't love me. Because if you did, you'd let me play with Mickey. Because he's better than you are. Mm-hmm. And I know what you are. And she's like, what, Eddie? What? And he calls her an F off. Yes. And it's great. It because is... he doesn't actually know what that means. So he's obviously, he's using it wrong. Yes. It's so but the, the, the worst thing about this is the way that Mrs. Lyon slaps him across the face. And she goes mad. Mm. You know, you know, you learn filth from them and you behave like a horrible little boy like them, but you're not one of them. You're my son, mine, and you won't ever be like one of them, which is her biggest fear. And she stops, she softens. You see Edward trembling at her and she pulls him in and gives him this big cuddle, which is really nice because you see this moment where she's like, oh my God, I'm losing it. Yeah. And off they go. And we go on to Kids Games, which is one of the most upbeat songs in this. Did you remember Kids Games at all from your time studying Blood Brothers? A little bit. Just that I got you, I shot you bit. And you bloody know I did, I got you, I shot you. Yeah. I, I forgot. I will say the one kid version I didn't like is Linda. Yeah. Mostly because I know they're seven, but she seemed like a four-year-old. Maybe it was just the pig. It was like over-the-top pigtails and she had her feet like pigeon-toed when she was walking. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is too much. <laughs> like, Take it back. <laughs> just a tiny bit. Fair enough. I like the character of Linda, though, a lot. Like, I like that she stands up for herself here and she's more dominant than Mickey. That's one of the things you said, it's like she's the most competent character. Yeah. But, yeah, she's she's cute when it's just her and Mickey and when it's the three of them, but yeah. when they were around other kids, I was like, mm, not so much. Yeah, but it's quite nice, I mean, in terms of, like, as a character... You know, I've said it before, it's nice when we show, like with Frozen, it's nice when you can see little girls being able to enjoy traditionally masculine things. Like, and it was just quite nice to see. But you know what I mean? Like, nobody seeing this is going to think of that stupid stereotype of what gender is. Like, Linda just has fun and is one of the kids. Yeah, but the people who come up with those stereotypes have never actually seen kids play. No, I know that. Like, kids, little girls have always played war. You know? Yeah. Oh, I, I know. But it's, it's such a shame because you don't often get to see it in media the way you would want. Mm. So I like this bit here. I like this song. It's it's fun because it's just kids using their imagination. You know, they're playing cowboys. Then they're playing uh, gangsters. And then they're playing war. You know, 
it's fun. I mean, it's gross when Sammy comes out with like a condom as like this bomb. Or is that one that was meant it, to yeah, be? Yeah, it is. Gross. Yeah, okay. And he puts it on one of the girl's hair and flicks at them. Are the rest of the kids supposed to be the rest of Mrs. Lyons' kids? No. Because I, they're... It's the neighbourhood kids. All right, okay. That's what I've always taken it to be, is just the neighbourhood kids. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how I've seen it. Um, especially because a lot of her kids are probably older, you know, as well. Like, they're not that age to go out and play these games. Mm. Sammy is, because he's two years older than Mickey, but Donna Marie probably isn't going out to play these games at this point. Yeah, she's like a teenager. Yeah, exactly. But yes, this the, the way this culminates is this great moment where, like, you know, the bomb goes off, we get the smoke on stage, and all the kids are like, you know, sadly like, oh, but if you cross your fingers, and if you count from one to ten, you can't get up off the floor again. Doesn't matter, the whole thing's just a game. Which is, I guess, important when we look at what goes on later, that when they do start to do these things for real, you can't cross your fingers, you can't undo a death. And <laughs> Mickey's not happy that he's been shot and killed, so he gets quite angry. Mm-hmm. And all the kids mock him, the only person who stands up for him is Linda. You said the F word, you're gonna die, you'll go to hell, and there you'll fry. And Linda stands up to Sammy who does the horrible spit down her dress. She covers her face, so he spits down her dress. Yeah. Gross. But she says to Sammy, it's like, you leave him alone, because if you don't, I'm going to tell my mum why all her ciggies go away when you come round. And he's like, uh-oh, I can't do anything here, because you've got the power. Mm. And off they go, and we have Linda looking after Mickey, who's crying, saying that he's upset and he hates them. Mickey's got Sammy's air gun. He says, let's go get Eddie. We'll yeah. go play with him. He's my best friend. What about me? Yeah, because Linda thought that she was his best friend and he just goes, no. Yeah, I like that. It felt very childlike. Even here, like their interactions feel like children who are like fickle. Mm. It's like Linda is objectively his best friend. But he's like, no, because Sammy's my new shiny toy. Or Eddie's yeah. my new shiny toy. Mm-hmm. They go get... Eddie, it's like Romeo and Juliet with the balcony, because Eddie's up on the top of the balcony. And Mickey's like, do you want to come? Wherefore art thou, Eddie? Mickey's like, come on, just come and play. So Eddie comes out and off they go. And they have the nice moment where they're talking about how, oh yeah, we get caught by police all the time. Very clearly lying, very clearly showing off, which is fantastic. And the way they're both like, yeah. Don't we, Mickey? Yeah, but they can't think of actually what to say, so they're just running off of each other. It is. And the synchronised speech here works really, really well. As they go off, Mrs. Lyons comes calling for Edward, and the narrator does his reprise of Shoes Upon the Table, Mm -hmm. which is done quite sinister for Mrs. Lyons' benefit here, as opposed to Mrs. Johnston's. He's like, your worst fears are coming true. Yeah, so she made up the the superstition about separated twins dying as soon as they find out. Yes. But she now believes it. Yeah. Even though she knows she made it up, but it has, obviously her mental health has severely deteriorated because of the weight of this lie. This is it. She can't even enjoy being a parent. Yeah, no, she got the thing that she wanted, but now she can't do anything with it, which is so, like... 
Greek tragedy. Yeah, it's but... like the Midas touch, isn't it? It's like anything yeah. you can touch can turn to gold, but at what cost? But now cost? you can't touch anything. Yeah. It, you know, it is. And it's such a shame because, like, obviously, this character was so desperate when we met her, she can't even enjoy it. But then at the same time, like, but you're kind of the villain, so... This is your own fault. Yeah. She calls Mr. Lyons back from work at midday in the afternoon. He's like, you called me home because our son is out playing. And he starts... This is literally your job, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, children go out and play. And she just says that I can't cope with this place anymore. It's my nerves, it's my nerves. Can we go somewhere else? She, He he just says, no, my work is here. And yeah, she's like, I don't want to move places i don't want to move to a different city i would like to be further away from this specific area yeah because she says she's frightened for edward and mr lance like frightened of what and then he puts the shoes upon the table and she starts to panic she like screams yes yeah and it's a really nice kind of moment the way that they're developing the madness of mrs lyons is, is is powerful is well done it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere you know, that's the, the the great thing about the montage-esque staging of this show mm-hmm. is it doesn't feel like it's out of place. It feels like the appropriate escalation. Yeah. This is the scene that you famously staged at school as Eddie. Yes, when we were doing the shooting at the Peter Pan thing. Ba-ding. Ba-ding. <laughs> yeah, and the boys miss, but Linda gets it every time. Yeah. Which is hilarious because of exactly what they're shooting at. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, Linda did the bit where she... So the first time she did it really but easily. She does it through her legs. Yeah, she yeah. does it through her legs. She's bent over, does it through her legs. And then Mickey's like, we're not playing with the gun no more. It gets broke if you use it too much. Yeah, because he's like sour that he didn't get hit it and that she did. Yeah. And he wanted to show off in front of Eddie. Yeah. So she comes up with a great idea. Let's throw some stones through some windows. And they encourage each other. Edward's a little bit nervous. But they say they'll do it, and just as they do, we get my least favourite line in this whole show. Never got it. Never mm. understood it. We have a policeman who comes in and says, My mother caught a flea. She put it in the teapot to make a cup of tea. What's going on here? I hate that line. I don't get it. I've what? never got it. My dad's always said that. Has he? Yeah, it's like a thing. <laughs> I've never heard it outside of Blood Brothers. Have you not? No. Oh my god, my dad said that my whole life. <laughs> My dad's from uh, the Lake District, but he's like, you know, northern. As, about as northern as you get. And I'm southern, so that's, that explains... You're like, the, as the, southern, yeah. yeah. And so that's probably why I haven't heard it. But yeah, my mother caught a flea. So basically what is it? It's just like, she's caught you doing trouble. Yeah, you catch her in trouble and now you're in boiling water. Okay, thank you for explaining that. <laughs> I'll use that when I teach each year. Every time I teach, I'm like, I hate this line. Nobody's ever explained it to me. Thank you. Yeah, because we live in the South. Now, this is a scene I love because of Eddie's like ignorance and, and his privilege. Yeah, please aren't scary. You know, you have Mickey and Linda stand up and they are terrified and they are mm. listening to what the policeman says. They're being respectful. But Linda's Eddie's like... T- Linda like curtsies. Yes. And they're like, sir, sir. And Eddie's like, what are we doing? Waiting for the 92 bus. What's your name? Adolf Hitler. mm and they, 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 they sob, like uncontrollably sob because they know what it means. Mm-hmm. And one of my favourite scenes here, we get this double bill of the policeman with Mrs. Johnson and then the policeman with Mrs. Lyons or Mr. Lyons. 
and he just scolds Mrs. Johnstone. He talks down to her, treats her like she's scum. It's like, we've warned you before, you and your sort. Mickey was the polite one. Mickey, yeah. Mickey didn't throw any stones. He was polite to the police officer. He's done nothing wrong. But the police has power over Mrs. Johnstone and talks down to her. We get a very brief version of Bright New Day. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Johnstone sings about hopefully getting out of here someday. But then we go into the Lyons household and the policeman is with Mr. Lyons and he's answering to Mr. Lyons at this point. Yeah. And he's all like, yeah, it was just some hijinks and, you know, he didn't really mean anything by it. But if I could give you some advice, sir, please, 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 please tell your boy to stop interacting with him. Because he's a nice boy, aren't you, Adolf? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drinks his scotch and goes. But it always makes me angry. And I think that's the point of this scene. Just to show, like, the damage of privilege. Yeah. Because Eddie was the one who who, who was at fault in this scene. Mm. And Mr. Lyons basically says, right, now now he sees why Mrs. Lyons is so scared. He says, we're going to move away. It's going to help your, your mother and her nerves. She's not been too well lately. Edward doesn't want to leave, so he goes to say goodbye. He sees Mrs. Johnstone. Who's very, very taken aback that a child is inquiring about her health. Yeah. And he says that he doesn't want to leave. That he just wants to be with Mickey. And we get this really nice exchange where he starts to cry and she comforts him. Mm. And I like this bit here. And he's like, yeah, why don't you come with us, Mrs. Johnstone? You could buy a new house. Just like that. Yeah. Yeah. And she gives him a locket that has a picture of her and Mickey mm-hmm. and says, it's our little secret. Don't tell anyone. And he's like gleefully like smiling. Like, yes, I never will. And then he says, I thought you didn't like me. I thought you weren't very nice, but I think you're smashing. And Mrs. Johnston says, God help the girls when you start dancing. <laughs> he doesn't understand. It's a great line. I love that one. She calls out Mickey, tells him to say goodbye. Edward moves to the country they moved to Skelmers or Skem Skelmersdale yeah which is a overspill town yes it was made well it was there already because it's been around since the like 1000s but it was made to house people that had to be moved out of these slums oh yes yeah Liverpool Did you know that I actually just know that yeah I didn't google it's impressive that. <laughs> Be impressed. Well, My geography is non-existent, but I know that. This is something that we teach as well, because it's so important. You've got to understand kind of the historical context of Blood Brothers. Mm. Liverpool was this global hub, like the... It's like the central engineering hub, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you had like all of the docks. It was a huge part. It was so important. Like most of England's trade came through Liverpool, mm. like across the globe. And during World War Two. 50% of the homes in the area were destroyed by the German Air Force. Mm-hmm. And following the war, significant amount of rebuilding was needed. And also Britain's economy was was in a perilous state. Yep. The trade emphasis switched from America and the Empire to just Europe. And because we've now got air travel, the advent of the docks is, is no longer as necessary. So, Which is really interesting considering how... How do I want to phrase this? Uh, in need of the docks we are now. Yes. 
So this is it. Most of the companies started to leave Liverpool. Unemployment began to rise. The population began to shrink. And then all these destroyed houses, Liverpool carried out a number of slum clearances in the early 1970s to places like Skelmersdale. Mm-hmm. Because they were going to rebuild. Yeah. Yeah. And they did rebuild. They just didn't actually replace it with housing that the people they'd forcibly moved out could then afford. Yeah. So it then just got gentrified. Exactly. We have this... It's kind of a filler scene. I don't really care too much about it, I have to say. I feel like at this point, this is where I'm ready for Act 1 to end. Mm. Is we have Mickey goes to the house and is like, is Eddie home? And the new owner's like, I don't know who he is and I'm rather busy, so go away. And he then sings. And you said to me as well, like, you forgot this song exists. We have Long Sunday Afternoon, My Friend. It's the first time anyone... Oh, no, I remember My Friend. It's just Long yeah. Sunday Afternoon. But I know it's a multi-song. Yeah, well, this is it. It's outside of kid games. Mm. It's just been the adult characters singing. And we get this one here where he's like talking about my best friend yeah, and how much they like, love each as other. As this song opened... I obviously knew what it was, like, subconsciously, but my brain gave me, oh, isn't it weird that none of the kids have sung yet? Yeah. By which I mean, like, a traditional musical theatre song. Yeah, because like, Where games. they're singing about their emotions rather yeah. than a movement song, you know? Exactly. Because Kid Games is a musical sequence, but it mm. doesn't feel like it, but it feels really authentic for what it's supposed to, like, represent. It's like kids chanting. Yeah. But yeah, this is okay, it just feels like it goes on a little bit too long. And you've just got how Edward wishes he was Mickey and Mickey wishes he was Edward. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that sense, it's important. But it just, it goes on a little bit too long, this sequence. Like, I feel like we'd be much better having Eddie leave. He's in the country. He misses Mickey. He goes off sad. And then we get Donna Marie with the letter being like, is it a summons, mother? No, it's a bright new day. We're going away. When nobody's ever heard our name. And yeah, we get the revelation that now the Johnstone's going to move out to the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone else in the neighbourhood is so happy. So you have like the milkman, the neighbours saying, praise the Lord, he has delivered us at last. The policeman says, I can safely predict a sharp drop in the crime rate. And you have this nice bit as everyone else is singing, they're throwing <laughs> their, their belongings out. I do really like all the adults singing. It is funny. It is funny. And you have like Sammy accidentally hits the milkman and is chased. But yeah, they, 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 they unpack and they leave. They sharpen the countryside. <laughs> Sammy's messing around with a bull off stage and they come back on because like, that's not a cow. It's a bull. Mm. And Mickey's very happy. He says, I'm not laughing. I'm smiling. I haven't seen you like happy like this for ages. It's really nice. And we end act one with a bright new day. We're going away. We're moving, moving home. Nice and triumphant. You know, we're in a good place. You've said it before on this podcast. You'll say it again. Act one leaves us feeling happy because everything's being torn to shreds. Mm -hmm. So whilst the curtain's down, they change the backdrop that we now have nicer places that represent Skelmersdale Lane. Mm Mm-hmm. We come straight back in with Marilyn Monroe too. And Mrs. Johnstone's having a much better time because a lot of men take her dancing. And she's certainly got a much more fulfilled life. Yeah. We have 
the fact that Sammy's grown up a little bit down. He burnt the school down because he was playing with magnesium. Mm -hmm. I like the bit where she has the judge and says he's old and slow and he comes up from behind the sheet. I'm old and slow. Um, And then he says, could I take you dancing? Take you dancing. And then something grows behind a curtain that Sammy hits. Sammy snaps as much as he can. Yes, because he's uh, certainly fond of Mrs. Johnstone. And I like the bit where she says that Mickey's just turned 14, you know, he's at that age. Mm. And he comes out and he basically has like his little rock star moment, which is nice. Yeah. And she talks about how Donna Marie's already got three. She's a bit like me that way. And as for the other child of mine, I haven't seen him. Although every day I pray he'll be okay. Not like Marilyn Monroe. It's the first time the use of Marilyn Monroe has been more tragic in referencing her death. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting for the start of Act 2. And then Mrs. Lyons starts using the dancing motif. She sings a little bit of Mrs. Johnstone's song. She goes, uh, that's right, you're dancing. As she teaches Eddie how to waltz. Yeah. And then promptly sends him back to uh, boarding school. Yeah. And Eddie says a nice thing about how we're safe here. What are you going on about? Silly mother. Silly old mummy. Yes. This is very, very fast paced. We go back and forth, back and forth, which is which is really nice here. Mm. So you see Mickey getting ready to go to school. He's going to be late. And it's suddenly saying that, you know, oh, you'll miss Linda. He perks up and this is where Linda comes on. In her, in her posh totty outfit. Yes. <laughs> like, with her legs together and having to kind of like shuffle forward. She can't walk because of yeah. the height of the heels that she's wearing, but it's awesome. And there's some nice funny moments here again. So Mrs. Johnson says, you've been talking about in your seat for your past week. Oh, my sweet darling. And Mickey's like, that was a line out of a school play. Mm-hmm. And they go to the bus stop. Sammy comes on as well. He's going to sign on for the doll. And this is where we get the conductor again, who would usually be the narrator. And these lines are still credited to the conductor in the script, Mm -hmm. but have transferred fully to the narrator now, where he says, happy are you, content at last, wiped out what happened, forgotten the past. We have Mrs. Johnston react. Yeah. But you've got to have an ending if a start's been made. No one gets off without the price being paid. No one can embark without a price being paid. And this one, especially with like the Pippin theory that I've been carrying with it, this line is like where the hype man, I forget the main character's name in Pippin, but where they start to show this more sinister edge. The leading player. The leading player. This is where the narrator starts to feel like the leading player, like he's like, no, because we've still got act two. Mm-hmm. No one's leaving without a sacrifice. The conductor gives Mickey and Linda their uh, four penny scholar. Sammy mm-hmm. wants the same, but obviously he's older than 14. And it resolves with Sammy robbing the bus driver, holding him at knife point, storming off. Yeah. And, you know, we establish his life of crime. He wants Mickey to join him, and Mickey is torn between Sammy and Linda. Linda says, "Your Sammy's going to get in trouble one day. You know, you can't be like him or else I'll stop loving you. Mickey's like, shut up. You can't say that. You always say that. It's embarrassing. 
She shouted it to the whole of assembly, yeah. Yeah. So they rush off to school because they're late, and then we cut to Edward at school, and Edward is playing cricket. And Mm -hmm. out comes his very, very posh teacher, who's talking about how well he's doing, but that Eddie's getting rather big for his boots. They're tight. (laughs) What does that actually mean? That's not like a slur, is it? Is Uh, it just like a, a rascal? Let's find out. Because he says, I think you're a tyke, Lions. The boys in your dorm say you wear a, a locket around your neck. Is that so? I, I always worry. So, it's from Yorkshire. Yep. A tyke is a kind of mongrel dog. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's used by... But then it's taken from like this northern yeah. meaning and used by southerners as a derogatory term for northerners. Uh but then it became a word that they called themselves like Grummy. So it's interesting then. It's almost like this teacher can see through Eddie and knows that his heritage isn't quite as rich as one would like. It could also just mean a small... Well, this says small bairn, especially a mischievous one. Yeah, so basically it's like you're up to no Naughty good. Naughty kid, yeah. And yes, he wants the locket because this is a boys' school because obviously the teacher's got outdated views here on, you know, gender roles. Mm-hmm. And Edward refuses. The teacher takes great pleasure in saying, am I to punish you? Am I to have you flogged? And Edward swears at him, says, you shall not take my locket. And he gets suspended. And then we have one of my most favourite transitions in this whole show. It says, Edward leaves. A chalkboard comes down. Mm. We have the students wheel desks on. And as this is going on, this same teacher who is played by Matt Slack, yep. takes off the robes, takes off the wig, messes up his hair, makes himself look dishevelled to become this state school teacher. And I love it. I love the fact that it's the same teacher for both scenes. Mm-hmm. And all it is is a quick costume he change. He messes his hair up. It's yeah, great. it's fantastic. And this is, you know, one of my favourite scenes. You've got Perkins. Andy Owens playing Perkins is one of my favourite little jokes where he's like, sir, 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 sir. Smack. Well, there's a bit where he puts his hand up, accidentally slaps the he teacher. He slaps the teacher in the face because he puts his hand up too quickly and then the teacher puts one of his fingers in the desk and slams the yeah. desk door on but It's like the look of panic on Perkins' face because he knows he's done it. It was an accident as well. but It was an accident, but it's still funny. It is. And you've basically got the teacher trying to get Mickey to give him an answer. Mickey being put on the spot is like, well, I don't know. And because you're forcing me, I'm just going to be a clown. And he gets suspended. Linda stands up for him. Leave him alone, you big worm. And gets suspended as well. Mm. It's a nice little scene. I think it, it, it shows, because we've had these two different scenes back to back again, it's important because we're seeing where both of them are coming from. You know, Eddie is in a very privileged place. You know he's getting a good education despite himself. Mickey doesn't stand a chance, especially with teachers that basically bully him. Yeah. He says he doesn't know. A good teacher would stop and re-explain it, but this teacher doesn't care. They're not in an environment where they have students who, who necessarily want to learn. But the teacher takes out their frustrations on Mickey. Yeah. And you definitely wonder, seeing as how Willie Russell worked in a school like this, how many students did he teach that were as disinterested or disengaged like this? Is he pinpointing this because he worked with a teacher this way? I think he worked with a teacher like this. Mm. And it's like, this isn't right. This is why the system fails. Yeah. 
They don't really do like what does he get sent out for? Because so basically, basically nothing. Well, what happened is is the question is what is the staple diet for the Bora Indian of the Amazon basin? And Mickey's like fish fingers. Well, how do you hope to get a job at anything? Well, it's boring. Yeah, you won't be saying that when you can't get a job. And Mickey responds, yeah, it will really help me to get a job if I know what people in Africa have for their dinner. Or maybe you're thinking I'm looking for a job in an African restaurant, so the teacher sends him out for being disrespectful. But you've put this this poor kid on the spot. Like, what do you expect? It's flight or fight. Mm. And this teenage boy is not going to stand up and let you degrade him, is he? It's bad teaching. I want to know what the answer to that question is. Yeah, because we never actually hear it, which is interesting, because I guess we are seeing it from Mickey's perspective, so we probably would never hear the answer anyway. Perkins knows. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like this scene, and I like the moments, like the use of the space that we have between Mickey and the teacher, that they are close. Mm. I quite like that Linda, all she does to stand up for Mickey, she you know, literally just stands up. She doesn't go and confront the teacher. She stands up and she gives him this dirty look. It's quite a nice use of space because it's a funny scene. And they, it's they, all very cluttered, isn't it? It is. But what's really nice is the moment where Linda stands up. You've got the rest of the students behind who are all like, woo, mocking and pretending like they're kissing people, you know, yeah. because they're like just mocking them. And you have like Mickey's face goes bright red. Mm. Apparently the answer is vegetables and fruits. Like manoik, manic, manok. Corn, <laughs> beans, bananas, and chocolate. Cool. Same as me. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Lyons household, and Mrs. Lyons is, you know, disappointed. You were suspended because of a locket. She asks to see it, and Edward says, well, I suppose so. She looks in. She's like, oh, is it a secret? Oh, did you get this from a secret girlfriend? From a secret girlfriend. Yeah. And she looks in for it and finds the picture, and she she's just like... Oh. When were you, when were you photographed with this woman? He's like, what do you mean, you silly mother? <laughs> that's uh, that's Mickey and his mother. That's not me, that's my friend Mickey. We don't look anything alike. Yeah. He says, are you feeling all right? You're not ill again like you used to be, are you? Mm. And yeah, he leaves. He says, I can't tell you. It's not important. I'm going up to her room. It's just a secret. Everybody has secrets. Don't you have secrets? And, you know, he said the magic words that bring back out the narrator to sing another chorus of The Devil's Got Your Number. And the, the narrator sings at Mrs. Lyons and intimidates her. It's like, I'm on to you. Don't you worry. We're, we're after you. What's the song? Where does the song fall? Because I'm looking at the song list and I can't see it. The song where he sings about, and you get the kids' voices as well, singing about like the mad woman who lives on the hill. That's later on. That's the Shoes Upon the Table reprise. Ah, okay. I like that. The next scene might be my favourite scene in the whole show. Is is Mickey and Linda up on the up on the the hill overlooking the estate, and she's like, "Mickey, I'm stuck." And they're both. What I love about she's from where. I love that they are both clearly into each other, but they just can't. Like, I think this captures that awkwardness. I think she's being very obvious. She is. She's doing a good job. Yeah, but like. It captures that awkwardness of, are you flirting with me? It takes me back to when we started dating. I'm like, are you flirting with me or am I just hope like? Oh. I'd like to think if I'd have been this obvious, you would have noticed. But like, you know, when it's like, I don't want to get my hopes up and I don't want to assume that you are. I'm too scared to make a move. And you have this nice moment where they just 
you know, she's like, I think you have a bit more success if you put your hands here. And she buries his head like between her chest. And oh, Mickey, be gentle. And he stops. He's like, stop taking the mick out of me. And she's like, I'm not. Yeah. And you have this nice moment where they're looking they, at each it other. Can't... Because he's in that proper teenage, like, why would anybody like me? I'm disgusting face. Yeah. He can't see why that she, would be a thing. And, like, she, they go to kiss and he, he prepares and he goes to kiss her back. And he's, he's like, like he oh, over prepares. Look over there, look over there. And eventually, you know, she, they're talking about this other boy. She's like, oh, he's lovely looking. Makes Mickey jealous. And, about Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. He's lovely looking. What do you care if I think some other fella's gorgeous? And Mickey's like, I don't. Yeah, and she storms off. And I love this bit where he's like, Linda, Linda, oh, I want to kiss you and put my arms around you and kiss you and kiss you and even fuck, fornicate with you. But I can't because I've got pimples and my feet are too big and my bum sticks out. And so one of the things I really like about this mm. is we don't often get much about male body image in the media that teenage boys aren't insecure about their appearance. Yeah. I like that this features here because I again everyone has had this kind of awkwardness of that first love and they're too scared because why would they be interested in somebody who looks like me? I think they do this really, really well. And we go into that guy, which is it's interesting because Mickey only sings in three songs Kids Game, Long Sunday Afternoon, and That Guy. And again, this is a nice one because it's basically, I wish I was like him. I wish mm-hmm. I was like him. You know, kind of the theme, isn't it? This whole thing, like Eddie longs to have this this poorer life. He thinks it's all romantic. Yeah, he thinks it's all bohemian. Mm. And yeah, they, they want... Boba, boba. <laughs> See, this is the thing. We've just learned before we recorded... Mm. They're not identical twins, and obviously the actors aren't identical twins. I always thought they were identical twins. So did and I. I just accepted that they didn't cast twins as the characters because suspension of disbelief. Yes, yeah, it's not important. Whatever you know. Yeah. In the same way as like Frozen, we just understand regardless yeah. of race that Anna and Elsa are sisters, and it's fine. But when I read beforehand that they were fraternal twins, it's like, oh, okay. But this is it. So one of the lines in this song is, each part of his face is in just the right place. And I always thought I always that was funny. That to be, yeah, it's funny because they have the same face. Yeah. And like, it's all perfect. And, oh, his hair's perfect. And my hair's the colour of gravy. And yeah. they're both saying that about each other. Because they're identical. No. Yeah, it's because they're not. like, they, yeah. But I like this one. And, it's based, and I, I just love the way it all culminates with, here's a ciggy. Oh, I don't smoke actually, but I can go and get you some. <laughs> Are you soft? A blood brother? And it's just oh, this nice that moment. moment feels exactly like that bit in Aladdin. Yeah. Where she's like, do you trust me? And she's like, wait, yeah. what? I like this moment though. I really do like it. And and it, she, just, it's like no time has passed. It's been seven years. Like, you know, they're now 14. They've not seen each other for seven years. And I like this bit. You know, Mickey lies and he says Linda's his girlfriend. He's got loads of them. Edward asks can i have one of them would you share and then mickey's like i don't even have one and it, edward's like well it's easy though isn't it mickey all you've got to do is just talk about you know how she long for her how your lines burn for her and mickey's like okay if it was that easy fine yeah he's like listen we're gonna go to the cinema because they're showing nymphomaniac nights and swedish au pairs mm-hmm. they pop home to go get some money mickey's like desperate like i'll oh, have a quid for the theater yes 
And yeah, Mrs. Lyons follows them doing this, and we do get the narrator singing again because mm. Mrs. Lyons is suspicious. And she follows them down. We get this really nice moment where Mickey, Mrs. Johnstone, and Edward are all together. And Edward's like, I do still carry the locket. There's the fun bit where they're like, what film are you going to go see? And the boys are like... Dr. Shivago. Yeah, so Edward says Dr. Shivago and Mickey says Magnificent Seven. So Mrs. Johnson's like, Dr. Shivago's Magnificent Seven. And she asks where it's on. Mickey says the Isolde. And she goes, huh, funny that. Because when I passed it this morning... They were showing these two ones and they try to convince them that it's, you know, pubs. a documentary and a travelogue. And she's like, oh, yeah, a travelogue all about the fantastic bends and curves of Sweden. Mm. And like Edward's given up on the pretense at this point. Mickey's just like embarrassed. And he says, like, your Mars fabulous. And Mickey's like, she's a head case. Off they go. And this is where Mrs. Lyons comes in and confronts them. And we get this nice, most powerful bit of silence. Because she's just staring, standing there in the kitchen. Mrs. Yeah. Johnson comes in, sees her, and they just stop. And they go, how long have you been here? Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Lyon says, yeah, you're too clever. You gave him that locket because you never wanted him to forget you. What else have you told him? And she tries to buy Mrs. Johnstone off again. She's like, here's the money, move again. Not she's that like, no. <laughs> yeah. She's like, yeah, of course you're not going to move. And I'm not going to move because you just follow anyway, wouldn't you? You ruined me. Tries to buy her off again. She's like, no, because I would just waste it on junk. And this scene is really, really powerful because you are seeing fully unhinged Mrs. Lyons. And even though there is more a status divide, Mrs. Johnson has the power here because she's securing herself for the first time. Mm. And she's not answering to anyone. And it culminates. So Mrs. Lyons goes to leave and she's like, I can see this now. You're like a shadow. You'll never leave. So I guess I'll have to make you. And she reaches out for this knife and goes to stab Mrs. Johnstone. Mm -hmm. And like Mrs. Johnstone fends off. He's like, you're crazy. Get out of my house. Yeah. And this is where we get the high upon the hill. The mad woman lives. Never ever eat the sweet she gives. What does this make you think of now that we've watched horror movies this year? It's uh, Freddy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. But it's so weird because like... I'm just sat there like... One of my favourite lines <laughs> is Mrs. Lyons shouting at Mrs. Johnson, witch, I curse you, witch. It's like, why? Where did that come from? Because she's a witch. She caused all of this by saying... She yeah. like manifested yeah, this whole thing. Yeah, but she's calling thing. Mrs. Johnson a witch. It's just so weird. No, takes one to know one. I know. We then cut into the Asoldo and we have everyone like on the cinema seats. On the girls at the back. Yeah. And yep. they're just all like, ooh. And the two guys in trench coats. Yeah. And you hear the voice, you hear like the voiceovers, ooh, hello, ooh la la. And then they come <laughs> out. It's not Swedish. No, no. And the boys just are standing there like completely like. They get kicked out. Yeah. Because they're early, like discovered because they're, like, they're underage. Yeah. And they're just standing there facing forward, like eyes glazed over, like naked knockers with nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say surely they've seen a nipple in a movie before but actually they probably haven't no because uh, of the laws of films at the time probably wouldn't have mm. had and we get um, playing tennis with tits will Wimbledon ever be the same and the boys are just like tits 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 what a wonderful way like to spend dancing. an evening yeah. out comes Linda and her friend Brenda who you now know is called Brenda well it's just mate and I'm assuming it's Brenda 
But yeah, they're all, you know, she seemed quite into Eddie. Like, Eddie's dancing her around. She's like, he's quite, handsome, yeah. They're taking and her posh. back. And eventually, Linda's like not going with her. So she leaves and they do their reintroduction. Mickey says they've been to the pictures. He's too embarrassed. So he says they went to see Bridge Over the River Kwai. And Linda's like, oh, we've seen that. We went to see Nymphomaniac Nights and Swedish Au Pairs. And Edward just starts laughing. And they're having fun. And then the policeman comes back up. And one of the things that's done really well with 14 is just how much it references seven. Mm. They they have the same kind of, hi, give some sweets. And then you also have the, you know, the, the police officer. Yeah. And the meeting with Linda. It's like no time this has passed. This is the thing as well. Is like, this is pretty... Like, from what I know, teen the rise of the teenager yeah. is like 60s to 80s. Yeah. So this is like early for them to still be teenagers and to be allowed to act like kids still. Yes. So it's just interesting. Yeah. And I love the bits. So the policeman comes out and they, they do the whole Adolf Hitler and waiting for oh the no, look, bus. what's that over there? And they storm off. And we then basically get this really great speech from the narrator that cuts forward over their teenage years that so go from 14 to 18 really, really quickly. Oh, the whole sacrificial lamb thing. Like, who would tell them? Who would tell the lambs in spring? Which is the plot of Charlotte's Web. Yeah. And I love this bit. So you see them at the fun fair and you see them doing the rifle range. I love all the people in the background being the roller coaster. Yeah, that was great. great. Up and down. That was great. Mm-hmm. Then you show them buying I love cigarettes. the bit of music. The music that sounds is like... gorgeous. Rogers and Hammerstein's yeah. Carousel, where it's like... It's, um, oh, it's one of the songs from this. Yeah. It's Living on the Never Ever, but it's a slow down version of it. Yeah. It's just... It, it just sounds perfectly like carousel is, music. It's perfect. This whole sequence is so beautiful. And Robbie Scotcher nails it as the narrator here. Mm. Then you have, um, you know, them smoking, eating chips and messing around. And then you show them on the beach. And this is a moment where Linda comes and takes, you know, goes up to the narrator and directly speaks to him and says, hey, mister, would you take our photo? He takes the photo. He, he seems like quite surprised. Yeah. I, this is where my brain, you know, when we watched the stage version of Into the Woods yeah. where they can suddenly see the narrator and you're like, "Ooh, let's kill him. Yeah. <laughs> it's his fault this is happening. I always like immediately in this. As soon as they talk to the narrator, yeah. I'm always like, kill him. <laughs> we can stop this. We can still stop this from happening. But one of the things that Robbie spoke with me about, because I asked him, how do you go about staging a role as iconic as the narrator? Mm. And he said, there's this one moment where this random individual takes a picture of the kids. Mm. And I tried it. Like, what if it was this guy who just learned about this story and felt he had to tell them because he could have got involved. He could have stopped this. And he's dealing with his own guilt. That's quite interesting because in this moment here, Linda interacts with him, speaks to him, and then he gives the camera back, but he grabs Mickey as Mickey's leaving and holds onto the arm before Mickey leaves. It's almost like he's trying to stop this. Mm. It's like at this point, the narrator wishes he could stop. And he says, and only if the three of them could stay like that forever, and only if we could predict no changes in the weather, and only if we didn't live in life as well as dreams, and only if we could stop and be forever just 18. Oh yeah, I like that we jump through all of this, because we're like fairly near the end, really. We are. It's going to go so fast-paced now, because we're getting to the bits that are important. Which is good, because this is the point at which 
I start to opt out of certain characters' stories. Yeah. And I just think... <laughs> most of them are the main characters. Yeah. I just like... love this sequence though. And I think it is. This is the last time things are good for these characters. Everything is going downhill from here very, very rapidly. You know, if mm. you think you've got act one, act two, but you've got part one of act one, part two of act one. You know, in the same way you say everything goes down in act two. This is part three. Everything goes down in part three. Mm-hmm. Linda, I, com- can I take a moment to say how much I loved Danny Taylor yeah. who plays Sammy? Because he was fantastic in this. And yeah. Yeah, he was. Sammy's great. He has played multiple different Beatles throughout his career, which is awesome. But yeah, he's he was one of my favourite actors in this. It's going to be very difficult when we get to the MVP later on, I mm. think. But we'll get well, like, to that. I also loved Grace Galloway, who plays Donna Marie, and then Miss Jones later on. I think she was awesome. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure I've seen her in something else, because I really recognise this actress. Yeah. But yeah, everyone in this is fantastic, obviously. But Sammy... First of all, really looks like someone I'm related to. Yeah. And also just in what is about to happen as we go on, I think is fantastic. Sammy's very underutilised as a I character. that too. Which is such a shame. Well, but... he, he ends up as one of the... Like, he's in the crowd when they're at the carnival. Yeah. And... But... For such a good actor, you would think you would use him in the background of scenes more. But obviously, when they're kids, he, he doesn't to get Sammy. to play any of the adults. So he's just Sammy. Yeah. So Linda comes out and says to Eddie, hello, sweetie pie, looking for a good time. Ten to seven. And Edward doesn't laugh. And she's like, it wasn't, it, you know, you could at least yeah, It wasn't try. an amazing joke, but you could laugh. Yeah. And we learn that Mickey's working overtime. And Edward reveals he's going away to university tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we say? He's pretending this day would never come. And he says, look, you can't have me leave on this cliffhanger. What is going on? Are you and Mickey official yet? And she says, I hope for his sake he never has to ask me to marry him. He'll be a pensioner. And Edward says, he's mad. If I was Mickey, I would have asked you years ago. Yeah. And we go into... Uh, Wait. Eddie's song. We're going to I'm Not Saying a Word. This part happens in 1981, which is when this was written. Does it happen in 1981? Where have you heard it's in that? I'm reading it off of the thing. Act two starts in 1977 when they're 14. And then as it goes on, when they're 18, it's 1981 and they're 18. Okay. And that is when the play was also written. So that year when they're 18 is set real time. And then the rest of it happens in the imaginary future. That's crazy. I've never seen that before. There's an alternate ending. Oh, yeah. Don't look at that. Please don't look at that. I'm going to talk to you about that in a moment. Okay. So, yeah, he sings, you know, um, not saying a word. It's basically his confession of love to Linda. And Mickey enters. And Eddie tells him that he's leaving. It says... You know, I'll be back at Christmas, but you don't want me to be in suspense for three months where you talk to Linda. Yeah. And eventually he asks her out and they kiss and it's the longest kiss mm-hmm. to the point that she's tapping out because she needs to breathe. She's like, yeah, it takes you a while to get to start. But once you do, you just don't stop. Yeah. I, do you know, I do feel bad for Eddie here. I don't like Eddie's character after this point. Mm-hmm. We're getting into nice guy territory. 
But here I feel bad for him. He's just confessed his love. And obviously he knows that her and Mickey have basically been a thing since before he re-met her. And they just haven't made it official. And he would never do that to either one of them. Yeah. So to have them just kiss like this in front of him is a little, like, insensitive. But, you know, they both thank him. And, they, you know, Mickey says, look, at Christmas I'm going to do so much overtime between now and then. So Christmas party will be on me. Linda goes and kisses Edward lightly on the cheek and says, thank you. And off they go. Mm. The narrator comes back out. And, of course, he can't have nice things. He says it was one day in October when the sun begins to fade and winter broke the promise that summer had just made. It was one day in October when the rain came falling down and someone said the bogeyman was seen around the town. Mm. And we learn that Linda's pregnant. And this must be a month later. Yeah, it's like a straight away. Yeah, straight away. And the first response Mickey's is... Mickey's obviously got his mum's magic baby having genes. Yep. Do you love her? When's the wedding? And And I love this bit where Mickey's like... Are you mad? Are you angry at me? And she's like... She bloody should be. She should be, but she, she says, some hypocrite I'd be. I'm not mad. I'm just thinking, you've not had much of a life with me, have you? And it's kind of like thinking, if, if only Mickey oh, It's had... like exactly the same, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, don't be stupid. You're Why great. didn't, at any point, Mrs. Lyons offer to take both of them? That wouldn't have happened. There's no way Mrs. Johnson would have given up both of them. I know. I mean... If you say so, she gave up one of them. No, I'm not judging, but like it's just a, she gave up one of them because her she whole could... thing was about like not wanting to separate them. But to she, start with. She anyway, did. that's not what I'm yeah. trying to argue about. Just like why didn't she ask to take both of them? Because she just wants one child. Like PL Travers. Yeah. <laughs> Google <Yes>. it. <laughs> so, ah, oh, I like this sequence. Get Miss Jones. I love this song. I remember this. That I don't remember that it was called Miss Jones, but I remember that it's just another sign of the time. Miss Jones. Grace Galloway is great yeah. here as well. But screw Mr. Lyons. Yeah, I was gonna say, did you spot who the owner of this factory is that's laying people off? Yeah. So fun fact one of my favourite wrestlers is is CM Punk. He has something in in common with Mickey. They both get fired on their wedding day. Apropos of nothing. Isn't it ironic? But yeah, so like, you know, I, I, Mr. Lyons firing Mickey on his wedding day. I thought it was just meant to be around the same time. No, because it, 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 everyone's still in their wedding gear. Because in the, the thing, in the plot synopsis that I've got, it says... They're married pretty much immediately after they find out she's pregnant. And then in that year, like slightly later on, it, he is then made redundant. But like right before Christmas. No, because it ha Because when he goes on the doll, they've already got... He would have had a lot of money Christmas saved up already. I don't know. It's I always took it to be the way this is staged because they are still in their wedding gear. It's on his wedding day because it's like fresh off being like, married, but they're still in their like honeymoon period Could kind be. of thing. Great thing about this play, it's open to interpretation. Mm, too much. I do like the the very last chorus though, where he's he he fires Miss Jones, and, and he, then they all sing. 
take a letter, Miss Jones, because yeah. she has to join the line. But the fact is that with Mr. Lyons firing her, he can't even do it with the same respect. He's just like, etc., etc. You've done too many of these. He doesn't give her the time of day. And then she joins the dull line. Mm. It's sad. And yeah, Mickey's left alone, and it's Christmas. Enter Eddie. Mm-hmm. And we start to see them falling apart. He gets apart. to still be a kid. Yeah. And this bit's really powerful when Mickey's like, yeah, we're the same age, but I've got life experience and you don't. And Eddie's like, oh, he well, I... He says, while well, nobody was watching, uh, I grew up. Yeah. And Edward responds with, well, why is a job so important? If I couldn't get a job, I'd just say, sod it, enjoy the dull, live like a bohemian, tilt my hat to the world and say, screw you. So you're not working. Why is it so important? And it's like, it sums you up so idiot, perfectly. Because yeah. you've got the line, like, there's a man going around the town. He's old before his time. That's Mickey. Like, you know, he's walking around in circles. He's old before his time, but still too young to know. Like, it is sad. And again, it's the opportunity here that Mickey doesn't have anything. And he is the first on the firing line. And he can't find another job. Because hmm. there are no jobs. It's not just because of lack of experience or lack of education. There are no jobs. Whereas Edward gets to go to university. But of course, Edward wants the, the romanticised, you know, be a bohemian Moulin Rouge lifestyle. Yeah. And Mickey's like, I would long for your life. The chance to make something of myself and still be a kid. And yeah, he says that the Blood Brothers thing is, is kid stuff. And he says, go, go see your friends, celebrate, just leave me alone because I don't want anything to do with you. And Mickey leaves... And Edward spots Linda. And this is where we get the cross-cutting of two scenes. We have Linda and Eddie reunite. And you have Sammy with a proposition for Mickey. You know, what are you going to do with your your life? This job, you get 50 quid for one hour. We don't use the shooters. We just use them to intimidate. And you have Linda being like, you know, Linda and Eddie... And Eddie saying, you know, I always loved you. Why can't we be together? And her feeling, I'm married and I'm expecting a baby. Yeah. And this is when you had um, Donna Marie, who came on again as another character, like one of Lyons' friends. You know, they go, oh my God, this woman was so angry. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what this character's called. It's just one of Mickey's friends. But his Eddie's friends. friends. Come... Oh yeah, Eddie's drunk college friends. They like stumble on. And then the guys are like, hurry up, Lions. You said you were buying us drinks. They go off and the girl stays and is like, hurry up, Edward. It's cold out here. And it's like, obviously, either his girlfriend, because I don't know why she would react like right? this if it wasn't. Or like they've hooked up at some point and she's mad about it. Or like she, yeah, like she thinks her and Edward are dating, but Edward's like keeping her at arm's length. Mm. But it is full. He has gone full into nice guy territory here because, like, yeah, instantly the second it's like the second that Mickey has said, "Leave me alone." He's like, right, well now I can flirt with her because we're not friends. Mm. It's just it's nasty. It really is because he's he's like, marry me, but you know they got married two weeks before you came home, and I'm expecting a baby. So it's only been two weeks, yeah, since that. So I, I that's why I think he got fired on his wedding day. Because it's only been two weeks that he's been drawing the doll. Mickey comes back and he says to Linda, uh, we're going dancing. Uh, then we're going to get a nice meal. Linda says, where's the money coming from? Oh, I'm doing some work with Sammy. And Mickey goes off and Linda's like, don't go. And knows that something's Instantly up. Instantly becomes accessory to murder. Yes. So 
Sammy's an idiot. But the narrator comes on, you know, is as mysterious and foreboding as ever. Yeah, so what Sammy wanted Mickey to do was to be a lookout for him while he did a robbery. Yes. And said he'd make 50 quid just for standing there. But Sammy then gets into trouble with the store owner. I think it's like an auto parts. Yeah, it's basically like garage. a garage. Um, so he then gets into trouble with the owner because he didn't think they would be there. Yeah. He then ends up shooting the guy. Mickey runs over and is there, so his fingerprints are all over everything. I really like that we get the reprise to kid games here as well. It's like, um, and maybe if you counted ten and kept your fingers crossed, it would all be just a game and then no one would have lost. You shot him, you shot him. I know I bloody did. You shot him, you shot him. Move, I've got to get this hid. Yeah. Like, you've got this really nice reprise of that and it's... Magically... In their new house. They've got the same hiding They've nook. got the same hiding place under the doormat. Yeah. The police come and they arrest both of them. And then we get Marilyn Monroe 3. Mm-hmm. And we discuss how Mickey is broken. That he's now on pills for the chronically depressed in prison. Which is likely not actually depression medication, but some kind of really strong painkiller yeah. that is actually dissolving his brain from the inside out and we see that he is struggling in prison linda's saying get off this stuff it's not good for you and we already start seeing mickey's this is the thing he's not he's not struggling he's not anything he has no emotions anymore he's run out of stuff which is why when i saw this as a kid i didn't like that they had him dribbling and drooling all over the stage like he'd had a lobotomy yeah like this guy can be himself again but he's drugged to the teeth and it just means that he has no pain at all but like emotional pain he can't feel anything enough to want to do anything yeah so yeah i i just think the the way you stage it i liked the way that they staged it here he just is himself but everything is turned the volume down like all the way down and he moves so slowly yeah, Alex Patmore does a fantastic job of, like, prisoner Mickey, mm-hmm. you know, who's dealing with the vices of addiction, but is this much more vulnerable character. Like, the juxtaposition of him being this really hyper-energetic seven-year-old child to this slow... Numb adult. Numb yeah. adult. It's just really, really, really phenomenal. And it's Because that's sad. the thing, more so than Eddie, Mickey always feels everything. Like, he's such an emotional character all the way through. That when you get to this part, it is so suddenly different. Because we've seen him have tantrums and scream and have joy and, you know, everything up till now. Yeah. I'm going to ask you at the end. I'm not going to ask you now. Just to give you some time to think about it when we do the MVP stuff. Yes, teacher. Whose story is this? Yeah. But yeah, we get another final chorus of... Marilyn Monroe, with grace for good behaviour, he got out before his time. So he was, only, he was supposed to be in jail for seven years. So he's 18, he's in jail for seven years, which puts it at 25. Mm-hmm. But he got out before his time. We don't know how long that is, but I'm assuming he's like... I would assume he did five years. Yeah, he's got to be like... Minimum. 22, 23 here. Yeah. So. They have a seven-year-old. Do they? They have a baby. They have well, they have they have Sarah. Sarah yeah. But they never say how old she is. Yeah, they do. Oh, okay. Linda says, "Our oh, Sarah's seven now." Fair enough. So, yes. Actually, that's a plot hole. 
They say he got out before his time, and then Linda says, our oh, Sarah's seven now. Yeah, but the time will have jumped forward. All right, fine. <laughs> Great thing with this show, time jumps forward. They're at still, random, yeah. yeah. They're still living at home with Mrs. Johnston, and she's managed to get Mickey a job. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Johnston wonders how. It emerges Linda knows someone. Yep, it's Eddie. It's Eddie. Just some fella. He's on the housing committee. And they've got a house as well. And then we see them in the new house. Mickey is really, really struggling. He's tearing everything apart, looking for something. Well, you know something. what I really liked on this set is the radiator. Yeah. Like, it's so, it so places you in exactly what kind of house this is. This yeah. isn't a nice flat. No, this is a... He hasn't given them, like, a cushy flat. But he's this still got like... them something that he can, but it's still not... It's not nice. No. Yeah, it's great. Like, again, it comes in from the top. Very nice, simple facade to mm. help set the scene. Mickey is really, really struggling. And him and Linda have this massive argument. Linda says that he promised that he'd try and get off them. Mickey says he tried. He tried last week, but by dinner time he was shaking and sweating so much he couldn't even work. He wants them, now give them. Linda says, but we've managed to sort ourselves out. Come on. Listen, Mickey says, I know what you did. It used to be that he just gave me sweets and ciggies, but now he gave me a house. You and, and count- a child. <laughs> yeah, it's like Councillor Lyons did this, not you. Now give me the tablets. I need them. Yeah. And off he goes. Yeah, and this is where we get a light romance. Yeah, Linda starts sobbing and she rings for Eddie. Mm. And light romance... Yeah, so this is the first time that Mrs. Johnston... So the way that the stage was for us, right at the back, there's these, like, factory windows. Yeah. And the narrator appeared in... There's, like, one specific window all the time. But this is where Mrs. Johnston appears in this window and she's, like, looking down, watching yeah. over while this is happening. She obviously is aware of the whole thing. Yeah. Like, and even though, obviously, this is a hindsight musical, this feels like... The moment she knew that she could have done more. Or the moment that she found out about it too, because it doesn't seem like anybody would have not known. Yeah. You know, like Mrs. Lyons sees them as well. Now. It's a whole thing. Mrs. Lyons sucks. <laughs> this version, I don't think it was obvious that Linda and Eddie are having an affair. They were making out on stage. They weren't making out. Well, no, they weren't, but they were doing stage making out where you just sort but of put your I've faces near I've seen other, other versions where they are, there is a proper kiss. And at this, it was just like, the moment that Mickey saw them Maybe was... it was for the actor's comfort. Maybe. And I'm not, I'm not complaining. But the moment that Mickey saw them in this time, it was a moment where they were holding hands before they left. Embrace, yeah. But I've seen versions where they are kissing, like proper, in a way that we've I not seen... This. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. But yes, we have this really beautiful I guess that's a really nice way to not make us feel bad about Linda. Well, because otherwise, Linda becomes so unlikable. Like, you cheated. She's suddenly the catalyst for the rest of... For, like, a justifiable catalyst. But if you can interpret it as she's done nothing wrong, this is her friend who's comforting her. Yeah. Whereas here, the catalyst is 100% Mrs. Lyons... Who goes to Mickey, picks him up and (laughs) points out Mm. what's happening. 
Mm-hmm. Right after he's getting rid of the drugs, too. Yeah. Oh, and this is the thing, is he has, he's trying, you, you can see with Mickey, he is trying to do everything for Linda because he loves her and he knows that she's miserable. He's trying to... Well, and also, the, you know, they have a kid. He's trying to sort it out. Yeah, he's trying to do right by her, but he sees, and as this song ends, he starts storming home and he finds oh, the gun. The opening of Madman. Yeah. Sounds exactly like Angry Dance from Billy Elliot. It is Angry Dance. Like the lights are red mm. at this point, and he goes off. Mrs. Johnson's come on screaming after him. The narrator sings. Oh, so obviously Lynn Paul is a ridiculously phenomenal actress, but like the way that she was screaming yes. and the way that they audio edited hers, because they put a, an echo on her yes. voice, it was like chilling. And obviously you've got the narrator then singing about the whole thing being the devil and making everything happen. Which, yes. like, I'm fully on board. I think the devil one is the way that you should take it. Yeah. I like the detective, but some of it is so non-factual. Like, it, some of what he's saying is so emotion-driven that it can't be a detective. Yeah. There's he, not it there's would no just detachment be, to it. Yeah. He's too invested in this all going wrong. So it has to be... Lucifer himself but yeah as this is happening we've talked about before that I get very stressed out about older characters and because at this point this is now we've caught up with Mrs Johnstone's age yeah you are very particular about age one of the things I really like is the way that the narrator grabs her at this point is saying to her like he's like this is it we're in the end game now yeah because she ends up in that same position with her hand up yeah. Like when he gave her the money at the beginning. Yes. And yeah, she shows the money as well. Mm. And then, yeah, we get the, there's a, <laughs> there's a madman, there's a madman, there's a madman. Like the the narrator just singing that but over and over as Mrs. Johnson explains to Linda, he's gone for Eddie. Well, he's gone. So he's gone he's with the gone gun. And Linda's like, oh God, he's gone to go and shoot Eddie. Yes. And she's like, what? Eddie Lyons. And then the narrator ends with, and someone said he's calling your number up today, 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 today. Yeah. And then in comes the the flats and we have this kind of town hall. council office, yeah. And Eddie giving his speech. And if for once I agree with Councillor Smith, which I don't always do, it's because he's right. Mm. And you hear some screaming, in comes Mickey with a gun. Yeah, and there's a woman there and a man there who are also, I would assume, counsellors. Yes. And the woman's obviously terrified. And so is the, the guy. But the guy because, is Councillor Smith. Cause... Because the woman screams, yeah. Mickey's like, get her out of here. Yeah. And yeah, he's like, I began thinking again. And he's so slow. And you see him, like, he's got the gun and he's hitting his head with it. And he's so slow and methodical. And he does this great thing where he charges over to Eddie he grabs him and he sits him down whilst holding him by the scruff of his neck and holding the gun to his head and screaming in his face. And you're like, what's going to happen? You know they're going to die. Well, we like, know what's going to happen. Yeah, but you're just like, and you see that Mickey is just amaring about it. Eddie's calming him down and talking him out of it. He's really not. Everything he says is some kind of triggering. Like, you know how Phantom 2... <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, Love Never Dies. You know how the ending of Love Never Dies... Yeah. 
the phantom is like talking i can't believe i'm gonna say this sentence the phantom is talking meg down yes and is like it's all gonna be okay we're like we could live happily ever after you know yeah come away from this place with me don't worry we can't all be christine and then she shoots christine yeah. and you're like you asked for that yeah everything eddie is saying is really pacifying but actually That's... isn't helpful yeah. Because he doesn't understand, and he would never. Yeah. Like he can't understand, but he's trying his best. <laughs> he is. As the scene happens, we get a little bit distracted because police officers have come into the yeah, stalls the, the right guy in front who, of us. The police officer guy stood behind me for like two minutes, and I knew he was there the whole time. And I was like, if that, if his mic megaphone thing goes off, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to leave. Yeah. Because that I don't want him to stand behind me and do this. I don't yeah. like people being behind me. <laughs> but yeah, he goes right up to the front. And you can see it on other sides of the stage and they're surrounding. Mm. And they're like, put the gun down. And they're trying to be really yeah. calm. Well, this is the one thing that Eddie says that I was like, oh, all right, cool. Because he's a councilman, you know, like he's yeah. actually got some sway with the police. And he says, well, put the gun down now, Mickey. It's not too late. And then he looks at the police officers. He's like, it's not too late, is it? And they're yeah. like, no, it's not too late. It's fine. Yeah. And... You know, Mickey's like, I don't even know if this is loaded. I thought I was going to shoot, but I can't do that. Mm. Good. End of. And then you hear, Jesus, what's that woman doing? Get her out of here. Because in comes Mrs. Johnstone. Yeah, she stands directly in front of one of the armed police officers. Yeah. And they she, got hit very quickly. They did. But again, we don't know how long this hostage situation's gone on for, but... Yeah. But to get, in England, armed police officers to a place? Yeah. Well, this is, you know, a different time, isn't it? Probably before laws changed. Yeah, we've never been very good about arming our police officers. Yeah. But <laughs> Mrs. Johnston, not that it's a good thing. Yeah, Mrs. Johnston clear. comes in and Mickey's like, go away. She's like, no. She's don't. No, I have to tell you. Don't you can't you... kill him. He's your twin. Your twin didn't die. I gave your twin away. Yep, I agree. His mother couldn't and have kids. And then he has his, I could have been turbo <laughs> moment, <laughs> which I can't unhear that now. What's that from? It's from, you know, the new DuckTales. Okay. There's yes. an episode yeah, yeah, of yeah. the new DuckTales where their mum shows up. And it's like, and it's like, what do you mean they're called Huey, Dewey and Louie? They're meant to be called Jet something and turbo and one of them is like I and he's like been. i could have been turbo <laughs> which now, like same same vibes the thing i love most about this and the thing i find most kind of like because Mickey is blind rage. He's just, I could have been him. And as he brings his hand back with the gun, he accidentally shoots the gun and shoots Eddie dead. The stage... He, I, I always... Or I think it was my drama teacher who told us the gun... He doesn't shoot him. The no, gun goes off. The gun goes off. Yeah, it's, it's not his fault. Yeah, it's accidental. Especially but, because, so obviously the police officers shoot him. Yeah, because Mickey... The stage direction says, On the word him, Mickey waves at Edward with his gun hand. The gun explodes and blows Edward apart. Mickey turns to the policeman... Apart. I'd love to see somebody do that on stage. Mickey turns to the policeman, screaming the word no. They open fire and four guns explode, blowing Mickey away. Linda runs down the aisle. This bit, I mean, we didn't have a central aisle, so Linda was just off stage. Yeah, this bit's loud, and you always get a few screams in the audience, and it's tough. But then they die, and then the narrator comes out for his final speech. Like this is it, the end of the play. And do we blame superstition for what came to pass? One of the themes, or do could it be what we, the English, have come to know as class? Did you ever well, hear the story of the Johnston twins as like each other of two new pins? And I, one was I kept... have come to hate that bit. By the way. Because I hate that phrase. Like, it's like each other as pins. It's, yeah. I think that's stupid. Now, 
you mentioned it a bit ago, and I want to tell you about the alternate ending. Mm, I haven't read it. I'm going to tell you this now. There is an alternate <laughs> ending. Am I going to prefer it? No, because this is this is trash, is what it is. Right. I'm glad this is an alternate ending that we didn't see. When you say alternate ending, has this version ever been performed, or was this like a concept ending? I do not know. That okay. I cannot tell you. Okay. In another version, Mickey has a fake gun. And when Miss Johnstone rushes to stop him and reveals the truth, which, pro- which provokes Miss Lyons to attempt to shoot Mickey in order to keep her own child, Eddie jumps in and takes the bullet and Miss Lyons shoots Mickey in rage. This version well, and the police officers don't shoot Mrs. Don't, Lyons. No. This version ends with the narrator's monologue. How, you know, did you ever hear the tale of the Johnson twins like each other as two new pins? How one was kept, one given away, how they were born and they died on the self same day. Just I hate that ending because like <sighs> I like the idea that it, he that Mickey gets um Eddie's Oh, do you know what I would like? If the ending is the real ending, yeah. except Mickey doesn't have a real gun, he has the air gun because yeah. it still makes the air noise. Yeah. So it makes like a pop noise yeah. and the police overreact and the police kill both of them. Yeah. I would like that ending a lot more. If the police shot Eddie as well, because then yeah. you could be like, what did class have to do with it? Like the police in the end yeah. assumed he was dead and both of them yeah. got killed in the same way. So, like, either way, they both died. I don't know. I think that would be interesting. Anyway, Mrs. Lyons is crazy, but she's not... And I've used that word very sparingly. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm glad she's not a murderer. I think that's a... I'm she, glad... I mean, she is. No, but... She I'm, manifested She did, death. and she... You know, she's guilty enough by bringing Mickey and showing him. Like, she is the woman with the stone in place of her heart. We end with Tell Me It's Not True. I once took a group of students to see this, and one of the girls was sobbing at this point. Mm. and in class we're studying this and all you had to say was tell me it's not true and she'd start crying and I'd ask her why and she said because it just reminds me of how sad the ending is and we'd have a conversation about how like shouldn't art move you it's not just about laughing it's okay to cry and it's powerful to it isn't that the great thing about art is that you come out feeling cleansed sometimes of these emotions but yeah we have this powerful song where they all come on this tableau where Mr Lyons puts the jacket over and then looks very confused as to why. Yeah. Oh, well, so the the narrator helped uh, Lynn Paul get her coat off. And I don't know whether that was I just I think that's a... always, I think that's how it's supposed to happen. I quite like it. It's the one moment. It's like, we've it's done like this. I'll let you have this, fine. We've yeah. done our sacrifice. It's not their fault. Now we will. It's funny, though, that the final tableau is not the same as the opening we see, where they get on stretches and are taken off. No, because we the show ends before the opening. Yeah. I always find it interesting. But yeah, we get the curtains, and sure enough, a standing ovation. Yeah. Everyone was... It came out for like four bows. Mm. But yeah, really, really, really powerful, as it always is. And yeah, standing ovation. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So what's your best song in this one? Because the song one is a difficult subject to broach with this because I don't really think there's many songs. I think they're great within the context Mm. Are they great outside of Blood Brothers, though? Um, I like I'm Not Saying a Word. I think I could listen to that on its own. Yep. I like My Child, My Friend. Yeah. Like that refrain yep. I really like. I don't think I would listen to it on its own. And I, the one that I remembered before we went to see it was Bright New Day. Yeah. As being like the, the big number. And that's the most musical theatre. Mm-hmm. 
I would listen to any, I mean, my favourite one is absolutely uh, Shoes Upon the Table, you know, when we got the devil's got your number. I love that. But I really do like Marilyn Monroe and Tell Me It's Not True as well, because mm. they're like really just powerful songs that are reprised so frequently. Yeah. I, I really like them. What would you say is your skip song if you have one? Devil's Got Your Number. Really? Yeah. Why is that your skip song? I'm a little shocked. I like the Marilyn Monroe bits. Yeah. Um, but the the actual Devil's Got Your Number bits, I just I think it's because it's pretty much the same and I know they're making a point, they're like yeah. hammering this in so that we have a takeaway from it. Yeah. But because it's over and over and over again, it's the same thing I had with Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, you got your point across, we had a verse and a chorus, and now you're singing the same thing for two minutes. Yeah. So I think it's just the re- repetition. Fair and it, maybe if they'd been slightly different, like, more often. Because yeah. there are a couple of different ones. Yeah. But then the same one's repeated again. And it's like the stupid story of the Johnson Twins pins thing, where I'm like, I'm sick of it now. You've said it like four times. Well, this is it. They're only ever like 30 seconds to a minute long. I'd rather have them as one big like super cut instead of like three different versions on And I'm soundtrack. sure somebody's done that. My skip song, I will say, is Long Sunday Afternoon, My Friend, just because I forget about it and I'm at that point where I'm just ready to move on. I would agree with you, but only if those two were separated. So if I could skip Long Sunday Afternoon, yeah. but have my friend. <laughs> it's like Queen Anointed. We have to listen to it because it's yeah, part of Yeah, I don't mind it, but <laughs> I would skip it to get to the next part. Which character do you want to play in this one? Because mm. there's, there's, there's quite a few roles. Well, like I said, when I was at school, I was Eddie. <laughs> I had a great time with that. Um, so you'd want to continue playing Eddie? I just think it's funny to play this like little posho yeah. who <laughs> doesn't understand what's going on to the best of his little heart. But like, um, but I think I would. I like. I, I'll say now, Mrs. Johnstone. Mrs. Johnstone, Lynn Paul is my MVP. Yeah, and I would happily play Mrs. Johnstone. I think she's so complex and interesting. Yeah, she's a great role. Um. I'd want to play the narrator. I've always, I would always want to play the narrator. Mm. He's he's my favourite role, and it is tough with an MVP with this one because there's so many different parts that are vital. I loved Robbie Scotcher. Yeah. I think his narrator is easily the best one I've ever yeah. seen. But I think because of how crazy emotional yeah. like he does a really good job of not being emotional yeah and, and that's stoic. that's its own power but the amount the range of emotions that Lynn Paul has to show yeah. throughout this whole thing of like so much of it is heartbreak but different kinds and you can tell the difference between all of them and it's really nice so I think that would be a fun not fun not the word I want. A challenging but you, yeah. role to play, yeah. I think I'm going to have to agree that Lynn Paul's the MVP, which goes without saying, like, definitive Mrs. Johnstone. Mm-hmm. But a very close second for Robbie Scotcher as the narrator. Because yeah. the narrator is such a great role. And just the watching of everything, like... A little bit different one before we go on to Twitter and Instagram. Whose story is this? Mrs. Johnstone. She has 16 songs out of the 23. Does it make it her story? Yes. She's telling it, regardless of the narrator being here. Well, this is it. It is her story. It doesn't happen without her. But in the same way, it's definitely, there is definitely more 
emphasis placed on the Johnstones as opposed to the Lyons. This isn't Eddie's story. This isn't Mrs. Lyons' story. We see far more of Mrs. Johnstone and Mickey and their struggles. You know, if you think as soon as Eddie goes off to university, the focus is on Mickey. We see Miggy. Well, that and Mrs. Lyons didn't raise Eddie. Yeah. She sent him to boarding school. So we see far more of Mickey's life and Mrs. Johnstone's life than Eddie. Mm. You know, when he's off at university, we don't see him getting his degree. We don't see him. We we just see him as this yeah. kid. And all of um, all of the tragedy, all of the heartbreak in this is Mrs. Johnstone's. It's framed through her. Yeah. Even in the second act where she's not so much the lead anymore because i would say she is in the first act yeah she still is the one that's telling us about the things that are happening because like we could have had linda sing that bit about what mickey is like in prison yeah because she's married to him she's visiting it would have been very interesting to have linda sing no more dancing like she's taken on the mrs johnson yeah but i like that it's still mrs johnson i think it's integral that'd be fun as a version to trial with the whole like history repeating itself that we're stuck in this endless cycle well, it is because now Mickey has a kid that doesn't have a dad. Yeah. Oh, I know. And it is. We're stuck in this cycle of Linda is now Mrs. Johnstone and she's taken on Mrs. Johnstone's song. That's interesting. Mm. So over on Twitter, 4% of people said, no, we're not fans of Blood Brothers. 29% of people said it's OK. It's not my favourite show. 67% of people said, yes, they like it. Let's go dancing. However, quite a few people have said they've never seen it, never studied it. And... It, it does, it's one of those that I think, because it's no longer on at the West End, mm. it exists purely in a touring capacity. And the tour finishes up for 2021 at Woking before it goes on again in February. I think it's come back to Wimbledon. I'm always aware of where the tour is near to us because, teacher, yeah, any opportunity to take the kids to see this. To those of you in the UK that have not seen this, you need to... You know, yes, it's a, a very, very bleak story, but it's such a powerful story and such a beautiful story as well. Uh, I can't recommend it enough because I do feel like it's like culturally important. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be one of the best songs. It may not be. It may not even be one of the best shows. The one that you're like, oh yeah, Blood Brothers is in my top five. I don't know if you can fairly say that, but it feels important, and maybe more people would go and see it if it was. On in the West End See, still. that's what I'm thinking about, because I know we're going to get to our star rating in a minute. Yeah. And I'm I'm trying really hard to think about this. Obviously, we have to think about it in terms of it is culturally relevant and it is an important show. Like, And, you know, it's on school curriculums for a reason. But do I take that into account or do I just go via my enjoyment of it? Yeah. Well, this is it, because... Is it one you enjoy or is it one that you just have to see? Uh, So we did hear from Jared Good, friend of the podcast. Obviously, one of the things I wanted to know is how well Blood Brothers translates across. You know, it had just under a thousand Broadway performances in three years. Not quite the longevity of over here. Mm. Um, But one of the things I learned, so, so Jared said he loves the melodrama and the moodiness of it. Easy terms and tell me it's not true are just stunners. I've only seen one production, a not-so-great community college production. You know. Which is fair enough. I think that's how you've got to access it in America, unfortunately. 
But I didn't know there was a parody version as well. So I'm going to have to do some... Uh, I'm going to have to do some looking into that. But he did say he'd really love to see a good production. I assume I need to see it in England. So yeah. I, I do think I have to continue to give this one five stars. I don't enjoy it in the same way I enjoy something like Anna and the Apocalypse or a Star Kid. But in the same way that you get Oscar films that you watch and you feel life changing. You're like, that is a great film. Like Parasite. We saw Parasite. I enjoyed it. Hmm. Would I ever rewatch it? No. But I still really, really enjoyed it. And I would say it's a great film that everyone should see. Yeah. I will say it's a five-star performance for me. I think Blood Brothers is great. I love the story it tells. I do like the songs. I like the fact that I still feel moved by the ending. Because mm-hmm. post-pandemic, it's become very apparent there still is a cultural divide. That yes, this is set in the 50s to 80s. England is still struggling. This show is as important as ever. What do you think? What's your verdict? What are you going to go with? I think three stars. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And that's like a push. Yeah. Unfortunately. Because I don't, I didn't not enjoy this. (laughs) Double negative sentences. I didn't not enjoy it. I think the way that it plays out has things that I don't enjoy. Yeah. As like just story beats in general. And maybe I was more resilient when I was a kid and I was watching this, or maybe I just didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. But like, this is show I don't think is for me. But the thing but is, three stars well, is like solid. You like shows that I think have a very clear story as well. Like very clear story structure. Yeah. I like, fairly black and white shows but the, and this isn't it and because the story structure in this is epic theatre Brechtian breaking the fourth wall direct address and you know trying to make you think when this is the thing I like escapism shows yes I like shows where I first of all don't have to do any homework exactly <laughs> before or after and shows where I can just enjoy the story that is playing out this is why I like fantasy so much it's like so the reason why I know everything about like dwarven culture in the Hobbit. Yeah. Is because this is not something I will ever use ever again in my life. But I like it because it's made up. Yeah. Whereas like stuff that's set like this, in the same way that I will not watch based on a true story yes. movies. Like I'm I, this is the real world. I'm not interested yeah. in it. Well, I think it's the same way that for you, Lame is and Miss Saigon aren't necessarily your favourite musicals as well because there I think isn't with the those escapism. ones it's definitely the same as this, I think, where I'm like, I've seen this now. Yeah. And therefore I care not for those characters who die because why should I know they die now? Yeah. yeah. You shot me once, basically. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds was... really harsh. <laughs> no, no, no. That was Blood Brothers. I yes. think it's a culturally important show, maybe more important in England than it is anywhere else across the globe. To our English audiences that have not seen this, mm. I do recommend you see it. I think it's one that will certainly make you think on the world we live in. 
to our American viewers, if you're over over here, it tends to tour quite regularly. <laughs> so I would say as well, come see it. Next week, 6th of December, we start off our Christmas season with a show that we've already seen. Yes, so we have, if you follow us on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, you will know that we went to see White Christmas On the 30th of October. Merry Christmas. (laughs) We went pre-Halloween in our Christmas clothes to see White Christmas at the New Victoria Theatre. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be releasing our review of that. It started its tour, or the very early days for the tour at Woking, and it's continued to go around uh, England. But I'm very excited to talk about a stage show of a classic Christmas film I've never seen. Yeah. Me too. Excellent. And then we will be talking to you about a few more festive films. We'll hopefully be able to cover The Grinch. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be talking about the Kelsey Grammer, Alan Menken, Christmas Carol. Yep. And we will end the year by talking about Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, which comes out over here on the 10th. We yes, indeed. also are going to be releasing a year in review episode. I announced it on Twitter. We'd love to have you get involved. Looking at the musicals that we have covered this year, what is the best musical that we have covered this year? We're not talking about the episode we've produced that you enjoyed most. Mm-hmm. Cats. <laughs> we peaked in our third episode, apparently. <laughs> but which musical have we covered this year? If you want to give us a top five, a top ten, or even just your number one musical that we have covered this year, get involved in the conversation over on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to record yourself speaking and send it to us, you can it's a musical pod at gmail.com and we will feature you on the podcast if you just want to send us your comments. Mm-hmm. But we will be talking about this on the 12th of December where we talk about our year in review because it's our first full calendar year. So look back at every musical we've covered. What is the best musical of the year for you? As always, you can get involved in the conversation over on Twitter and Instagram at It's a Musical Pod. Let us know your favourite musical of the year. Let us know your thoughts on White Christmas. And let us know if there's anything you want to say to us about Blood Brothers. Did Drew get it wrong or am I just too enthusiastic? Let us know. You can subscribe to us on a multitude of good podcasting platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music under the podcast section. We are on Stitcher. We are on Good Pods and we are on Podbean. Mm-hmm. If you like what we do, why not head over to Apple Podcasts, to Good Pods or Podchaser.com and leave us a review. Once again, thank you to everyone who has listened to us on Good Pods, where we've charted yet again. We also charted in Taiwan. So hello to anyone who's listened in Taiwan, in Switzerland. We've charted, very rarely, we don't often do this, but we've charted in the United States of America this week, which is very, very exciting. So thank you to everyone who has been listening to us. We will see you for the start of our festive season, the same bat place, same bat channel next week. And have a magical musical Monday.